Hi, my name is Chris Brennan, and you're listening to the Astrology Podcast. Today is Friday, March 5th, 2021, starting at about 1.31 p.m. in Denver, Colorado, and this is the 294th episode of the show. Today I'm going to be talking with Israel Ajosi, and we're going to be talking about the astrology of the moon and the significations and meanings and different uses of the moon in astrology. So hey, Israel, thanks for joining me today. Thank you very much for having me, Chris. Uh, great uh, catching up with you. It's been a while. Um, but uh, yeah, I think this is the first time we've uh, had a conversation in 2021, right? So yeah. Yeah, first time. So we've been we've been planning this episode for almost a year now. Uh, yeah. you, you previously appeared in episode 213 of the Astrology Podcast, but that was actually when I visited London, London and did interviews yeah. with a bunch of different astrologers and my last trip to Europe before yeah. The pandemic hit, and I haven't yeah. been able to visit again. But hopefully, again, one of these days. Hopefully, soon. Once they once the airlift uh, is raised or something. <laughs> yeah. So um, when I talked to you last, uh, when I was there in episode two thirteen, we talked about that you were at the time the vice president of the Astrological Lodge of London. But since that time, you've actually become the president of the Astrological Lodge, right? Yeah, that is correct. Uh, a lot's happened. Um, yeah, it's been a great honor to uh, to have been uh, elected the president, and um, I was actually even making the point that uh, you know, with Kim, who was the former president, that um, I believe I'm the first uh, you know uh, black president of the astrological lodge, and she says, "Well, never mind about being the first black president; you're the first non-white <laughs> uh, president of the astrological." So that was like a great accomplishment, uh, you know. I felt, uh, uh, but it's a great honor. Um, I've got a great team around me, you know, I've got really good support and um yeah, just looking forward to taking the astrological lodge bigger, wider. Uh we're we're also online now, uh, you know, uh, you know, since last year due to the pandemic as well. Um, as many astrological organizations have started to operate online. So we're we're now online now as well. So our weekly lectures are also taking place online. So it's it's really a great uh, move forward. That's awesome. So yeah, I mean, you, that's a great lineage that you're you're in at this point, becoming the president of the lodge, and you're taking over from Kim Farnell, who had been the president for I think at least a decade. Yeah, twelve years actually. Twelve she years. Did, oh, yeah. yeah, she did. Uh, she did Old a full Jupiter cycle. Yeah, a full Jupiter cycle, and uh, if mine serves me correctly, she was actually in a twelfth house uh, perfection as well, which was quite interesting as well. Which was sort of like leaving it, you know, you know, and then you know, I came in, so that was quite yeah. interesting. Uh, and so, previous presidents of the lodge have been people like I think Nick Campion was president of the lodge at one yeah, that's, point. Yeah, yeah, that, yeah, and, correct, and correct. going all the way back to a century ago when the lodge was founded by Alan Leo, Alan right? Leo. Yeah, was founded by Alan Leo. First president was actually Bessie Leo. Uh, a lot of people um, feel that uh, Alan Leo was actually the president, but he was never the president. His wife oh. Bessie Leo was actually the president. Awesome. Okay. Uh, and then we have the likes of uh, Charles Carter. Who was uh, the one of the longest? Not one of the the longest reigning uh, president. I believe he was there for like twenty five years or so. Um, remarkable astrologer. Uh, for any of you uh, guys who know his books, you know he's written quite a few books on uh, his books on aspects are quite remarkable. Actually, I really recommend that. Um, so yes, yeah, Jeffrey so Cornelius, uh, president Jeffrey Cornelius. Yes, he was okay. president also as well. Uh, Check Claire Chandler. Um, yeah, uh, Ronald Davidson. Uh, so we've we've had a few. Yeah, well, those are uh, big shoes to fill, but that's really exciting and really awesome. And so, due to the coronavirus pandemic, you've started doing 
your meetings online, but that means that people from anywhere in the world can attend your weekly meetings, right? Yeah, that is correct. Um, as we all know, you know, the pandemic, since that everything has been going on online now, it has its, uh, you know, pros and cons, just like anything in life. Um, so we are getting more of a new audience and we've got some members who actually live outside of London, even in the UK that live outside of London, who wouldn't um, be able to make weekly uh, visits to the Astrological Lodge because it's too far. And then we also have members also outside of the UK. And, and obviously they wouldn't be able to, um, uh, you know, come or, or, or attend uh, lectures weekly in the UK either. But now it's available for them to be able to attend, um, you know, online. So, so that's really wonderful. Uh, plus we've been getting some new people and new faces. And, um, so, so that's great as well. But, uh, um, I believe, uh, you know, a lot of the members who were there, they have been saying that, you know, they missed that physical, <laughs> you know, uh, you know, because, uh, you know, because the, there is a kind of social aspect to it as well, you know, and after on Monday nights, we'd go out and perhaps have a drink or, uh, um, you, you know, I mean, you was there in the pub with us uh, the, yeah, the yeah. last been, time I've you came, the... so it was it was quite cool, you know. Sometimes that's the best part is meeting up at the pub afterwards and talking about the the lecture, talking about the topics that were presented. Exactly. Uh, well, hopefully, it'll be back before too long now that the vaccines are being rolled out and everything else. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, hopefully. Um, well, they, they reckon over here in the UK by uh, well, they they're saying by June, you know, May June. Uh, so around that time, so hopefully um, everything eases up and uh, we can come back out again and start running things as, as as they were. Cool. All right. Well, people can check out more information about the lodge at astrolodge.co.uk, um, and maybe we'll talk a little bit more about it, that at the end. But let's uh, segue into our main topic today, which is the astrology of the moon. Yeah. And this is actually something you're presenting a lecture on for the lodge. I think on next week, right? That is correct. Yeah. Um, speaking on the moon, it's actually a replacement talk. Um, but, uh, I came in and I, uh, uh you know, I, you know, put in, uh, you know, uh, something on the moon. So I'm going to be talking about applications and separations of the moon and how that manifests, uh, you know, in the natal chart and how it shows particular pivotal periods, uh, throughout life. Brilliant. Okay. So. Um, we talked about doing this episode last year, and one of the points that you made was just uh, that the moon is often overlooked, especially in like the 20th century, due to the emphasis on like sun sign astrology and modern astrology. But traditionally, the moon was given a lot of importance in astrology, and it has many different roles and uses, right? Most definitely. Um, I strongly feel, and it's not a criticism or having a go, but I, I also think it may even shed a bit of light about what the moon is about. It's, it's very interesting because, it, you know, generally in astrology, people will speak about the moon as it's our sort of like, it's an inner part of ourself or it's a more private part of ourself. And that's quite interesting because most people on the planet, um, you know, pretty much everyone knows their sun sign, even people who don't believe in astrology or don't know nothing about astrology, they all know their sun sign. But if you, I can guarantee you, most people don't know about their moon sign. Which I think that says something within itself. I think it's it, it's showing us here that there is something hidden, there's something mysterious about this particular planet, and why is it that uh, this planet doesn't seem to get as much attention as the sun? 
I mean, uh, I mean, and of course, for obvious reasons, we look at the sun, it comes out in the day. So if we look at it from a symbolic perspective, the sun is giving us light, it's giving us warmth. You know, it rules the sign of Leo also as well. So it's all about bright. It's all about attention. It's all about being at the center. Whereas with the moon, it comes out at night where most people are sleeping or they're in their house and, you know, the windows are closed and so on and so forth. So the moon has a very, it, it, it's, it's operating. It's just as powerful as the sun, but it's, it seems like the moon seems to be operating on a sub level or a, or a hidden level on some kind of, a, and I feel that's one of the reasons why it tends to be overlooked. And, uh, you know, it, you know, again, I'm not having criticism with modern astrology, but, you know, we, we open up you know, astrology books and very often they'll say the moon, oh, it represents your emotions and it, you know, represents mother. And yes, it is all of that, but there is far more to the moon. Uh, the moon may be showing us and telling us much more about who, what, why, and when uh, in our lives than we may actually realize uh, in, in the birth chart. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So so we're going to go into um the significations of the moon today. We're going to read some excerpts from different ancient and modern authors on what the moon means. Yes, um, and we're also going to talk about different techniques that involve the moon in astrology. Um, so, in in traditional astrology and like ancient astrology, they actually paid a lot of attention to the sun, the moon, and the rising sign. And yeah. That's one of the changes that I'm really liking that's happened over the past few years. Is it seems like Younger generation of astrologers that it's starting to be more common for people to know their big three: their sun, moon, and rising. Yeah, um, which is a nice shift. But yeah, this might be a good starting point for giving people that are just getting into or just learning about their sun, moon, and rising more insight into what the moon sign is all about. Most definitely, and we have to remember that. Um, again, Alan Leo has a a lot, uh, you know, a lot of input in this. Um, insofar as this idea of sun sign astrology. Mm-hmm. Um, we have to remember it's at, at best maybe a hundred years old. It was due to the popularization of, you know, astrology c- columns being in magazines and newspapers and them referring to the sun sign. That's where it became popular. I mean, prior to that, uh, if somebody, it was well known that when somebody asks you, Oh, what, you know, what's your star sign? Uh, the first thing actually you would say, you would say, Oh, I'm cancer rising Libra sun. You would always state the rising sign first, um, which was something that kind of really, uh, I started to see when I started to study like Vedic astrology, for example, I started to notice when I went to India, you know, uh, talking about astrology, the moment, you know, I'd say that, you know, the first question they would ask, they would say, what's your lagna, which is the, you know, you know, their terminology, the Sanskrit terminology for the rising sign. Uh, and, and there was much more emphasis on the rising sign. And then the next question would be, what's your moon sign? You know, what, where, what's the Chandra Lagna? What's, what, you know, what Naksatra is your moon in? You know, because they placed a lot of it. So it was rising sign first, then it was moon. Then they'd ask for the sun. <laughs> you know, the sun always sort of like came last. What I've noticed predominantly in the West, uh, we've taken a more solar approach. Uh, it seems to so when we talk about astrology, you know, even just you know, meeting somebody on the road or whatever, or just even a general chat, the first thing, oh, what star sign are you? So we always go to the sun sign. We always seem to go to the sun sign. For I'm not necessarily it's wrong, but I'm just saying that there seems to be more attention uh, uh, or lenience, or we could say a, a bit of a biasness towards the sun more 
and, uh, you know, it's left out. But I, I, I'm in total agreement with you that I'm very, uh, happy as well. And, uh, you, you know, to see a lot of the n- new people or the youngsters coming into astrology now, they're now learning about their ascendant signs and learning about their moon signs also as well. Yeah. One thing maybe to go along with what you're saying is that the moon sign and the ascendant sign are much more personal because those change much more frequently with the rising sign or the ascendant changing every hour or two yes. and and the moon sign changes every you know two or three days versus the moon or the sun sign where the sun spends an entire month going through each of the signs of the zodiac and it takes a whole year to go all the way around the cycle so um it's a little bit less unique in that sense and additionally the moon is the closest celestial body in our solar system to us which makes it also a little bit more personal or a little bit more important in terms of things happening on earth and i think that's one of the reasons why traditional astrologers tended to emphasize the moon in in charts in every branch of astrology not just natal astrology but also in electional astrology and horary astrology much more as well yeah, yeah most definitely uh totally agree um and i think that's one of the most key and fundamental points about the moon to know that it's the closest planetary body to us. And because of that, the moon is very, very, very earthy, you know, mm. in, in, in it. And I think it's quite remarkable also that the moon is also exalted in, in a sign like Taurus. You know, Taurus is one of perhaps we could say one of the most earthiest of all zodiac signs. So it, it, I feel it's very appropriate for her to be exalted in such, you know, in such a sign. So there's something, although the, the, you know, the moon is connected with our emotions and how receptive we are. There's, there's something about the moon that really manifests in this physical realm. You know, the moon is actually known for pulling down all of the celestial energies. Uh, when we look at the planetary order, uh, you know, the Chaldean order, for example, we see the moon is, 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 is at the bottom. It's the final one. So it, it's, the moon is actually the first planet when we incarnate into this physical world, the moon is actually the first planetary archetype that we come into contact with. Uh, as a matter of fact, the moon is, we're in contact with that lunar energy whilst we're in the womb. Um, and the moon, the, uh, even in the natal chart, the moon can even shed story and light of the kind of condition that we were experiencing while we were in our mother's wombs. Um, in uh, the technique known as the seven ages of man, um, you know, it starts off with the moon. You see, we, we go through these uh, particular periods where each planetary, each planet shows a particular uh, period of life. But the first one is the moon. So the moon is the first thing we meet when we are born into this physical world. So, uh, you know, the moon is set in the tone, it's set in the foundation. Uh, our first earthly experience, um, whether for good or for ill, is all situated around our moon's placements in the birth chart. And this is one of the reasons why I feel that the moon must be highly regarded and it's ex- of extreme importance. I'm not saying it's, I don't necessarily want to say it's more important than the other planets, but it's, uh, you know, it's it must be highly regarded. Definitely, it's on par. Definitely with the sun, uh, you know, the two luminaries. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, and well, and that's one of the, mentioning the sun is really important. But that'll be a digression. But just the fact that from our vantage point on Earth, when you look out 
into the night sky, or you look at the sky that even though the sun is so much further away from us than the moon is, and the moon is so much closer that they actually um, are pretty much almost exactly the same size from our vantage point on Earth, um, so that there's a sort of parity between them in some sense in terms of just that observational um, distinction from our perspective on Earth, which is, is relevant, even though it's not true from, let's say, a universal sense. If you're standing outside and looking at the solar system, the sun is much bigger. But, yeah. but there's, there's something about that visual component when you're actually looking at celestial phenomenon that actually makes a difference, the fact that they're the same size. Yeah, most definitely. And, and, and symbolically, that is letting us know that the, there's something about the moon and about the sun that you know they they they're on par it's both king and queen it's both right. father and mother it's both masculine and feminine uh, day and night and you know they, they both have equal power equal rights uh, you know in their own they'll express it in their own way of course which will you know there'll be a difference in that but you know they they're on par that makes sense um so I, i'm trying to I, I found a diagram that i made a while ago that shows the Traditional notion of like the seven spheres that in like Hermetic and Gnostic and other co cosmologies, the before birth, the soul was said to descend through the planetary spheres from the, the realm of the fixed stars. And then it would go through each of the spheres and it would pick up different qualities from each of the planets along the way. And then the last sphere that you go through before birth is the sphere of the moon, which is the closest to the earth. Right. So that's one of the things that you were saying in terms of just connecting the moon, the the moon being the celestial body, most closely connected with the Earth and the physical body and physical incarnation. Yes, and most definitely, and uh, you know, and and through that, the the moon, uh, and as we we're going to get into it, uh, the moon is uh is some it it's connected to the physical body. It is the body. Um, it's quite it's quite interesting because even from a scientific perspective, it's quite interesting because um, we speak in astrology as the planets, the planets don't compel us; they impel, and mm -hmm. th there tends to be uh, this idea or this school of thought that, especially sometimes in astrology, that the planets are it's the forces or the gravitational forces of the planets that are somewhat controlling us or making us do things in, in 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 some way shape or form and you know science would say well there's no f evidence of that however the only planet that where there is some scientific evidence of planets having some effect on us is the moon mm. uh, reason being because the moon we know the moon has an effect on the waters on the tides on the oceans um, it, it controls the ebb and flow. Um, it controls, uh, you know, aspects of nature, animals, uh, oysters are said to open up during full moons and, and things of that nature. So we, we see, uh, uh, animals responding to the cycles of the new moon and the full moon. Now, if the moon has a, such a profound effect on the waters, the physical body, as we know it, uh, science will let, will tell you is 75, 70 to 75% water. So it's, it's going to have some kind of, uh, you know, some kind of pull or some kind of effect, which can be even measured scientifically on the physical body in some kind of way. 
Um, and, and it's only the moon that can do that. That seems to have that kind of, we can, where we can make that, if you want to say correlation or rational explanation or, you know, other planets where you can say, oh, well, we don't know that Saturn's doing that. You, you know, again, it's all symbolic. Um, but the moon gives us something tangible is what I want to get to. It gives us something earthly that we can really make a correlation to that it's doing something. It's connected with that physical body. Yeah, that's a really good point because that actually ties into an episode I did last month with uh, T. Susan Chang on astrology and tarot and whether astrology is a form of divination in the same way that tarot is. And one of the things we talked about in the conclusions that we came to was that there are similarities in terms of the use of like symbolic thinking and um, the interpretation of symbolism um, in a way in astrology that's very similar to tarot. But then one of the points that we and, and there's some authors like Jeffrey Cornelius that argue that that astrology is entirely divinatory, like yeah. tar tarot and other forms of divination. But then um, astrology is tricky because it always um, blurs boundaries. Or yeah. tradition traditionally, astrology was associated with Mercury, which often tends to like straddle both sides when there's an issue or when there's a difference between two sides. Yeah. And astrology is kind of like that in that there is that symbolic or divinatory and symbolic um, part of astrology. But then there's also sometimes really is um, potentially, at least in some limited cases, like causal. Influences from certain celestial bodies, such as as you're pointing out the moon and its effect on the tides, as well as other natural phenomenon, and then also the sun and its effect on the seasons through, um, you know, different levels of light uh, during different parts of the year. So that's a really good good point that helps balance out the other side of that discussion about what is the mechanism underlying astrology. Yeah, yeah, most definitely. Um, it makes, makes, makes total sense. And I feel, you know, astrology is, uh, that's why, I, you know, personally, I feel astrology, you know, it, and all divinational methods, if you want to say, they do have both components. They have that, if you want to say the rational side of, you know, of things, but they also have that part, which is, it's non-rational. It's based on symbolic, if you want to say intuitive or imaginative, uh, but, it, and it's about being able to use both sides. We shouldn't throw one out for the other. It's not a case of whether it's this or that. It's it's both are actually operating. Both hemispheres of the brain, if we want to say, are actually at work. Uh, and I know sometimes it can bring up a bit of a paradox or a bit of confusion. Or is it this or if it's that? Uh, why can't it be both? You know, uh, which is that mercurial, uh, the, the mercury uh, aspect of it. Yeah, I think that's crucial to understanding the nature of astrology, and that's something I've been really focused on for like ten years or so now. Is just the the mercurial or what I call sometimes the hermetic nature of astrology, and the fact that as a result of that, if that being a part of its basic nature, that then you will sometimes run into issues where there's a divide even in the techniques of astrology, and there's a question of is it this one thing or is it this other thing. And sometimes the answer isn't uh, either or, but or, instead yeah. that it's both. Yeah, yeah, and and I feel that's it, it's part of human nature. Uh, I mean, we 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 it's it that's that's the if you want to say the the aspect of the ego that's looking for the one <laughs> where it can feel safe and uh, feel maybe protected in some kind of way, or feel like it it's got it, it's got the answer, it's uh, and it. 
life is not like that. There's uh, it, it, life is not black and white. There's actually more happening in the gray areas than there is on the the side of the black and white. And and it's about being able to take different aspects. It's it's okay for people to have different methods or different techniques or to be able to see it from another perspective in a different way. Um, it it, it all works, you know. So let's welcome it all. Yeah, that makes sense. All right. So, um, other basic stuff that we want to get to. Um, I wanted to show a little image really quickly to show um, the glyph for the moon for those not familiar with that. So, this is the symbol for the moon using the classic astro font, which I believe is made by Kenneth Hurst. Um, so, in terms of the traditional rulership scheme or the traditional essential dignity scheme, the moon is said to rule the zodiacal sign of Cancer. And the sign opposite to that, which is Capricorn, is known as the sign of the detriment, or what I call sometimes the antithesis of the moon, the sign opposite to its its home or opposite to its domicile. Uh, the exaltation, as you said earlier, is is said to be Taurus, and the sign opposite to Taurus is said to be the sign of the moon's fall or depression, which is the sign of Scorpio. Yeah. So that's just basic, basic stuff. But for those coming in, I think this is going to be the start of a series on each of the planets where I might go through and do this for each of them. And I thought this would be a good, good starting point was doing the moon with you. Um, but I wanted to set up some of those basics as we sort of go, go along and go through this. No problem. Yeah. Sounds great. Can't wait. <laughs> All right. So. Um, let's see. I'm trying to think if there's anything else before we dive into um, reading some significations of the moon from some ancient and modern authors. Is there anything else you want to touch on that we should touch on first before jumping into that? Um, no, no, no. We can. We're, we're cool to go. Yeah. Okay. So, in that case, um, I have a few authors that I wanted to read. Um, yeah. Where. Over the past 2,000 years, there's sometimes in astrological textbooks just lists of significations and meanings for different planets. And I wanted to take some excerpts from different authors that lived in different eras to show you both some of the similarities as well as some of the differences in how ancient and modern astrologers talked about and conceptualized the moon. Yeah. So, this first one that I wanted to show is. From the second century astrologer Vadius Valens, who yeah. the very first chapter of his anthology, he gives significations for each of the seven traditional planets. And um, this is from my translation, which is in my book titled Hellenistic Astrology, the Study of Fate and Fortune. Yeah. So what Valens says is he says, uh, the moon, which in Greek is Selene. He says, the moon is born from the reflection of the solar light, and possessing a counterfeit light signifies in a nativity man's physical life, the body, the mother, conception, form, appearance, goddess, living together or lawful marriage, nurse, older sibling, housekeeping, the queen, mistress of the house, possessions, fortune, city, gathering of the masses, gains, expenditures, home, boats, travel, wanderings, and then he has a parenthetical remark where he says, since it does not hold a straight line due to cancer, the crab. Um, then he goes on and he says, of parts of the body, the moon rules the left eye, the stomach, breasts, the breath, the spleen, membranes, and marrow from which it produces dropsy. 
Of substances, she rules silver and glass. She is of the nocturnal sect, light green in color, and salty in taste. Now that's a lot. Yeah, it covers a lot of ground. That that covers a, so much ground. Um, it's we could be here from now until for the next three months, uh, going into detail of one of those things. Right. Um, and you know, if we look at some of the words that uh, Valence uses there, uh, you know, the physical body, the life, you know, uh, um, you know, the breath. You, you know, so, uh, many of those words wouldn't even be considered. Uh, um, in today's, um, you know, explanations or, um, you know, expressions of what the moon, uh, you, you know, is essentially is about, you know, every, all our life is really encompassed in, in those key words that Valence was using there. You know, uh, it's connected with, uh, you, you, you know, all aspects of life, all aspects of physical life is the moon. Yeah. So, so that's, that's right. that our daily life, our lifestyle, what we eat, um, um, how we, how we, you know, you know, get, uh, you know, possessions, money, you know, um, you know, also connected there with, with, with traveling, wandering, you know, and this is one of the reasons why, um, uh, a, a few weeks ago, I, I remember I posted something and I spoke about the moon having the, you know, her joy in the third house. You know, and some, uh, some, I remember somebody sort of like emailed me and said, what moon in, you know, her house of joy in the third house, you know, and again, we can kind of see the connection there because, you know, the third house is associated and linked with travel. Uh, uh, uh and, uh, we can see how, you know, boats crossing the waters, wandering again, how, why she would have her joy in that particular house. So the moon is really, fascinating when i really start when we really start looking at many of these key words which you've mentioned just by valence there it's very very important indeed it is it's our incarnation in the most physical level that's what that moon represents yeah and that's his very first signification and it's interesting because he's contrasting you know like like we could have started this series with the sun we're starting with the moon and I think that's actually a good idea for the most part because of the moon being closer and how important it is in astrology. But one thing that we are missing by starting there is that um, Valens, in his significations, he gave the sun first, and he associates the sun because it's the concept of um, light. He associates associates the sun with the intellect and the soul and the spirit and the mind and intelligence of the person. Um, so, because the sun emits light versus the moon, he talks about the moon receiving light and reflecting light. And also, because it's the closest planetary body or celestial body to us, that it signifies one of his very first significations is physical life in the body and the physical incarnation. So, that's that is probably a really good starting point. The notion that the moon and this runs through much of the tradition, just the notion that the moon has to do with one's physical incarnation and physical body as opposed to one's mental or sort of spiritual body, let's say. Yeah, definitely. And just to digress there a moment there, when we go into, I mean, there may be a little bit of biasness there insofar as that in all, if you, if we go into pretty much most spiritual teachings and they speak about perhaps the beginning, if you go to the Bible or, or something and they speak about the creation 
the first thing that seems to be have been created was that light. Hmm. Uh, um, um, you know, in the Bible, they, they say, or oh, it was, you know, it was, you know, non-form and darkness. Uh, so again, so it, it's, it's actually given us a clue that maybe aspects of the moon, that feminine archetype was actually there in the first place. Um, they speak about, it's quite interesting in all mythologies, very often when they speak about the creation, there's always water there first before anything else. Um, uh, but nobody can seem to explain how the water got there. <laughs> but there's always seems to be water. And again, the moon is the planet that presides over the water. So again, we're, we're tapping into that feminine energy there. So, but the sun or the light seems to be the first thing that was, you know, was given birth to or was created in some kind of way. So the light seems to take again, precedence again, that the, the masculine energy. And that could have been maybe a, a patriarchal thing, maybe perhaps uh, as to why it is that the sun comes first. So it may be a patriarchal, uh, uh, manifestation of, you know, the schools of thought of the time. But, uh, uh, I would say the moon was also there as well. You know, again, just as important. That makes me think of in the the ancient mythical birth chart for the birth of the world in ancient Hellenistic astrology called the Thema Mundi. Yes, um, it was said to have that the world was supposed to have started. Its birth chart is supposed to have Cancer rising with the Moon in Cancer in the ascendant, and the rest of the planets um, flanking out in zodiacal order. Yeah, based on their relative speed and distance from the Sun in Leo, uh, next to Mercury in Virgo, then Venus in Libra, Mars in Scorpio, Jupiter in Sag, and Saturn in Capricorn. But it has the Moon very prominently placed on the ascendant in the first house for the birth of the physical cosmos. Yeah, I'll, I'll take that. <laughs> you'll take you'll take that. That's your. You'll accept that as the. I'll birth. accept that definitely. Uh, okay. uh, the, the Moon. The Moon comes first. <laughs> Uh, and especially for us on planet Earth, because for us it is, and in in the birth chart, it is the most personal planet. You can't get more personal than the Moon, right? Yeah, that's a really good good point. Um, okay, so physical body as contrasted with like the mind or the intellect or the spirit in ancient astrology. Um, you talked about um, how the Moon. Is associated with the third house according to the planetary joys scheme, and I thought that was going in an interesting direction. So let me see if I can pull up uh, a diagram that I have for the planetary joys, just so I can show show people that because that's actually a really interesting point. Um, here it is for those watching the video version, uh, just a diagram that shows the ancient concept of the joys of the planets, where uh, Mercury is said to have its joy in the first house, and it's said to be associated with the first house. Yeah. Saturn in the twelfth house, Jupiter yeah. in the eleventh, opposite to Venus having its joy in the fifth, mm-hmm. Mars in the sixth, and then the Sun has its joy in the ninth place, which is said to be the ninth house is actually called the house of God. Yeah. And it's opposite to the Moon having her joy in the third house, which is said to be the place of goddess. Yes. So so sometimes the ancient astrologers, instead of like Vedius Valens, instead of referring to third house, ninth house, tenth house, or what have you, they'll call it the house by its name. So they would say the place of goddess or the house of goddess for the third house. Yeah. So one of the points that you were making is then as a result of that, probably partially due to that connection, both 
I mean, the moon has some inherent significations of its own that have to do with like travel and wandering and also like messages. Um, but also then the third house picks up some significations traditionally from that as well. Yeah, most definitely. Yeah. And, and, and even perhaps even with brothers and sisters, you know, I, I've been, I've been, yeah. you know, just pondering for quite a long time as to the house of joy of the moon. Is there an association with brothers and sisters? Well, of course, you're going to have some kind of emotional bond or some kind of, you know, emotional connection with brothers and sisters. I know one can say, Oh, well, what about the parents? Well, yeah, there are parents, but we, we don't, we don't, we don't communicate or we don't, we don't, you can say vibe with our brothers and sisters the same way we do with our parents. Uh, we may want to ask our parents for permission for something or, but with, 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 with our siblings, especially if they're not too, uh, you know, if the age gap is not too, you know, too wide, you, you know, we're, 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 there's something there about that family. There's something there about that emotional bond that we can play with, that we can, uh, it, you know, we can connect and, and it's, it's very lunar orientated. It's, it, it's, it's, it's something different from mother and father. And again, it's also in that house also as well. And, and, and again, on top of that, then we get the traveling too. Um, uh, yeah, that's so, a good point. So Valen says older siblings for the, the moon is one of the significations of the moon. Exactly. So in addition to that is the, the mother, uh, is one of the first significations that he gives in terms of other family members, as well as the nurse or like being nursed and the concept of being nursed. Um, but that connection with the mother then is important. It, Valence connects the the sun with the father and the moon with the mother, but that in and of itself might tie us back into some of the physical connotations in the sense of like, you know, a person you are with your mother for your first, let's say, nine months of yeah. physical life from conception until birth, and are essentially an extension of her body in and of itself. So there's this real physical connection with the mother, yeah, and so we 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 see some connection there. Yeah, oh, most definitely. And, and the, the thing is, is while we're in our mother's wombs for those nine months, there is no, and that's the thing with the moon. The moon doesn't, she doesn't separate. She, she sees everything as, as one. There's almost like a merging into one. So when our mothers are pregnant with us, when we're in the womb for those nine months, there is no separation. Child and mother are one. And even when the child is born after the umbilical cord is cut, there's still a, a very strong, because we still have to go to mother for uh, for the nurturing, that, that, hence why the moon represents the nurturing, because we rely on our mothers to perhaps breastfeed us, or whether it's a bottle also as well. These are the kinds of things that it's, it, it tends to be the mother's duty to do that. I'm not saying father can't be involved in, in nurturing the child also as well, but it's primarily the mother's duty to do that. Uh, the, the father can't breastfeed. It's the mother that does that. So there's this nurturing quality that really ties us in with that lunar energy, with that moon energy. Yeah, that's a really good point. Just the, the idea of the mother like physically feeding from her own body, like the infant, um, and that connection there, again, in terms of a real like physical quality uh, to that, yeah, and hence, hence why when we go to uh, Valence's uh, keywords, um, he, he lets us know that the moon rules the breasts. 
Right. The, the yeah. breasts are that that's one of the main purposes of the breast is to breastfeed the child, is to provide the child some kind of nurturing comfort, you know. So, um, uh, we see the, the link and the connection there. Yeah, that's a really good point. And that also ties in with um, the, I don't know what the traditional term, I th- I've heard it referred to as like the zodiac man or the traditional associations of the different signs of the zodiac with different body parts. Body parts yeah. Um, and uh, I'm trying to find one really quickly uh, just using Google search, but where you start by assigning the first sign of the zodiac, which is Aries, to the, to the, head. The, the head and the top of the body. And then you work your way down to like Taurus uh, with the throat and Gemini with the arms and the shoulders. And then Cancer is the next. And it ends up being like the, the chest or the breast. Yeah, the breast. And a Cancer also, or, or the moon, is also uh, presides over the stomach. Uh, why stomach? Because that's where the food, what goes into the stomach is the food. It's, it's the food that nurtures us, that, that, you know, keeps us alive, um, that, that sustains us. So again, so you have the breast that feeds the child and the stomach that the food goes into. Those are the things that the moon or cancer preside over. Yeah. And that food connotation is really important with the stomach. And then through that, the connection with food and like physical, sustenance and that which it takes in order to maintain one's physical body and physical life yes which is and quite separate from you know a, a more solar thing of what it takes to maintain oneself and one's mental or spiritual life or what have you um but that connection with between the moon and food then is probably somewhat important which then also ties it into two signs cancer and um taurus the sign of its exaltation that are also sort of connected with that as well Yes, most definitely. I would I would definitely agree with that. Yeah. Um, and I meant to mention because like you mentioned um Taurus being the sign of its exaltation, but you actually, my friend, are a moon and Taurus uh native, right? Yes, yeah, certainly. <laughs> okay. Do you share your chart or you feel comfortable yeah, sharing yeah, your data? Yeah, most definitely. Oh yeah, yeah. People? Let the world see. <laughs> okay. because uh, I we learned or I learned that it was important just before we started talking, um, because you actually were born with Cancer rising in the moon as the ruler of the ascendant, exalted in Taurus, uh, actually in a in a night chart. Yes, yeah. So that's very powerful, and, and we're, I'm sure we're going to be talking about that in regards of the uh, the sect, um, which we'll we will be discussing. I'm sure uh, you know further down the line, and how um, you know the moon rules uh, you know the the nighttime chart or its insect you know by nighttime. So that is something of, um, well, if you want to say, call it an advantage for me, I suppose. Um, but, uh, I do find people who are born in the night or who have nocturnal charts, they tend to be, they, they respond to the moon in a different way than people who are born in the day. Mm. You know, I, I see the, 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 whether you want to say the emotional responses, the physical responses, the lunar responses, Tend to be far more stronger for those people who were born uh, during uh, in nocturnal births than diurnal. Yeah, I, I agree. Let's so let's get into that. So that's the doctrine of sect, yes. which is the distinction between day and night charts that's used in ancient astrology. And in that doctrine, there's a bunch of things connected with it. I've done I did an episode on the astrology of sect a few months ago, but one of them is that there's a distinction between 
what's called the sect light or the luminary that's in charge during different parts of the day, and that um, during the daytime, the sun is the luminary that's in charge and that provides light. But at night, when the sun goes down below the horizon, uh, anytime the sun is in the bottom half of the chart, then it's nighttime, and then the moon becomes the sect light, and the moon is the one that provides light um, you know, at night and basically becomes the luminary at that point. Yeah. And this also sets up a distinction between two teams of planets where you have a daytime or diurnal team of planets, which is led by the sun, and its teammates are Jupiter and Saturn. And then there's the nighttime team, which is led by the moon, and its teammates are Venus and Mars. So that's basically the doctrine of sect without getting into it too much. But that does, going back to your point from earlier, set up yeah. uh, a sort of parody between the sun and the moon where they're much more even in ancient astrology than, yeah. than they did in some later traditions. Yeah, most definitely. Yeah. And, and, and it lets you know that the traditional, uh, um, even medieval, um, astrologers were, um, you know, they, they acknowledge this. They acknowledge the, the, the power of the moon and, what it is the importance of the moon and what she represented and what she, uh, you know, the importance, uh, you know, the weight of what she held, uh, based on even just sect. Again, it, it's, it's sun and moon. It's, it's masculine and feminine. It's king and queen. Um, uh, god and goddess. Um, it, we, we cannot, uh, throw more weight on one than the other. They both have equal, um, <laughs> rights, so to speak. Right. Um, yeah, and and so that's one interpretive distinction that people should pay attention to. Like you mentioned right from the start, is that if you're born with a day chart, if you're born during the day, then your sun sign might be more a little bit more important to you. But if you're born at night, then your moon sign and the position of the moon in your chart may actually end up be more important to you than your sun sign. Yes, most definitely. It's 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 more the the, the images of the moon are more readily accessible so to speak or uh, for the person who's born in the night it now that doesn't mean if you're born in the day that um your moon is void or in some way shape or form you still have the emotions obviously you're still going to have a mother you you still need nurturing also as well but it may not be something of uh, uh you know importance it may not be at the forefront of certain things uh, that you uh, you know witness or circumstances in life, then somebody who was born in the night, where the moon is the the sex ruler, uh, the, they function more uh, from an instinctual perspective. We, we could say that that's probably a fair statement. That people who are born who have nocturnal births tend to function or tend to move more from a, a, a lunar instinctual. Uh, uh, manner than people who are born during the day. Mm, okay. Uh, yeah, and one of the other things, yeah, there's there's a whole thing we could get into there about the moon providing light during the night, and this question that I've been trying to work through about to what extent then does the moon at night become almost like the solar principle of of uh, indicating light and the intellect and the soul and things versus. What does the sun become at night if a person has a night chart? And what does it signify? Um, I think that would be too long of a digression to go into, so I'll I'll, I'll save that. But but it's quite interesting. I think it's still a very interesting point. Um, uh, w w what happens to the sun? Um, I, I mean, uh, if we uh, again go to a little bit of mythology, if we go to the Egyptian mythology, for example, 
um, you know, they had, you know, the, the idea that when the sun set in the evening, he was swallowed up by the serpent. Mm. Uh, um, and he was eaten. So, so there, there was no sun. Of course, there's no sunlight, of course, at night, but there was no sun. He's eaten up. He's, is, and if, if we look at the chart where the sun is traveling during the night time, it, it goes through that fourth house, which is, it's a place of endings. It's a, you know, it's also where the rebirth also starts as well, but it's a place of endings in some kind of way. So the moon has, is more alive. She has more power. She is in charge. You know, if we look at them as in terms of rulers, kings, queens, rulerships, the moon is ruling the night time. That, that is her time. It's not the sun. So, the, the, it doesn't mean that the solar principle is not there, but it's just not at the forefront. You know, uh, we could say we can liken it maybe to president or vice president. You know, in the daytime, the sun is the president and the moon can be vice president, maybe. And whereas at the nighttime, it's reversed. The, 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 the moon is the president and the sun is vice president. He's, 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 he's in the background. Yeah. I think that's a really good way to talk about it. President versus vice president and which one has a more primary or like commanding role during that part of the day versus which one's still a player and is still important but is taking a a, a secondary role in some well, sense. Yeah. All right. So one other thing I wanted to mention. Um one of the things that uh one of my teachers, Robert Schmidt, mentioned and noticed when he was reading through the significations of Valens is that Valens um, focused on certain overarching concepts that seem to be tied into the traditional planetary rulership scheme, which puts certain planets in opposition to different planets. And some of this, like Rhetorius of Egypt in the 6th or 7th century, also puts the basic significations of the planets in opposition to each other based on the domiciles. Right. But some of the keywords that Schmidt noticed, and I've adapted this a little bit from him, is that um, the sun's basic principle in many of its significations is that it emits light or it emits things. Yeah. It, it it shines or it radiates. Yeah. Whereas uh, in the sign of Leo, especially, and this is opposite to Saturn having its domicile in Aquarius, and Saturn in many of its significations having this principle of rejecting things or yeah. um, you know saying no to things, things or excluding. Right. So the moon, on the other hand, has this basic signification or core meaning underlying many of its significations of gathering and receiving things. Yeah. And this is opposite to Saturn's principle in Capricorn of excluding things. So I think that concept of like gathering or receiving things is a really important core principle underlying the moon that comes up in many of its significations that would be good for us to keep in mind. Yeah, most definitely. Uh, she she represents our receptor. It, she represents how we receive things. Um, when if we go back to the base, you know, one of the major words that we use for the moon, emotions. How we receive emotions. Um, if we go back to nurturing, well, how how was the nurturing? Because in order to be nurtured. It implies that you are receiving something. If somebody's feeding you, if somebody's giving something to you, uh, so how we receive, how receptive are we? Uh, depending on what sign our moon is in and what house and the aspects and the condition of our moon shows us how is it that we are able to receive 
And when I talk about receive, I'm not just speaking on an emotional level, but also on a physiological level also as well. How do we gather things? Our, our, our relationship to food, our relationship to the environment, um, how we connect with nature because the moon presides over nature, you know? Um, uh, so how, how do we receive that? How do we connect to that? Uh, how do we gather things? Uh, we, we, we collect things. Uh, sometimes we, we speak about uh, things having some kind of sentimental value, you know, uh, maybe something that's been passed down, maybe in the family or, you know, or, or, or we speak about people who perhaps maybe who collect lots of things and we call them hoarders, people who hoard things. You know, again, this is all lunar stuff. You know, as we go through life, we, 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 we gather things, we take things. Uh, uh, you know, you know, and, and that's what the moon represents. The moon represents that part of us. That is, she is the collector of all of our human and physical experiences while we are here on earth. She is collecting all of that. And depending where she is in the chart, what position she's in, what condition she's in, she will shed light as to how we go about gathering or receiving or collecting these particular experiences, whether it's physiologically, whether it's psychologically, whether it's emotionally, it's all there. Yeah, I like that. That's that's really good, and it it's tied in partially with the notion of the the moon um, receiving the light of the sun and reflecting it. That light, that notion of reception, but also the going back to the planetary spheres, the notion that the moon is the the lowest and the Celestial body closest to us, but because it also is the fastest and it moves around the zodiac in just 28 days or about a month, yeah. that the moon um, collects in ancient astrology, it was said to collect all the effluences of the other planets that filter down through the cosmos. And then the moon uh, collects and receives them and then like dispenses them yeah. uh, to people on Earth. And that's one of the reasons why there are a number of um, more complicated aspect concepts like transfer of light and collection of light yeah. that developed in medieval astrology yes. that we'll talk about in a little bit um, that become very important in terms of that notion of the moon gathering and um, conveying things and, and yeah. taking them to other other parts. Uh, most definitely, yeah, yeah. And those things actually, once we start delving into the natal chart, they actually start they start setting the tones of how things are going to manifest and play out actually in our life. Mm. Uh, the moon is the one to watch. Um, <laughs> you know, she's she's the one who's, uh, you know, she's sort of like she's the trigger, you know. Uh, uh, she's the, she's the trigger point. Uh, we know sometimes even in transits, we've seen very often when the moon goes over a sensitive part in the chart, or even by transit or by progression or something like that, something, you know, it, it, something tends to happen. Um, or also with new moons and full moons and, you know, these kind of important and very sensitive, uh, planetary, uh, configurations that we witness, you know, throughout the year. So the moon is the key. Um, she is, um, I, I always refer to her as the oracle, mm. uh, kind of like in in uh, in the Matrix, uh, when uh, Morpheus is always saying to Neo, "Look, we got to go and see the, you know, we got to go and see the oracle. You got to go and see the oracle." I always liken the the the, the oracle, uh, the the moon, to the oracle. She is our cosmic oracle. I like that. That's I, I really like that. 
Um, well, and the, and the Oracle also had like a great like lunar energy, especially in that first film. Definitely. Uh, where she like welcomes Neo in and sure. Yeah, yeah. And if you yeah. notice as well, it's quite interesting because it, it, like you said, in the Matrix, she welcomes Neo in and you see her, she's always cooking. She's always baking cookies. This is Moon. She's always nurturing. She had all these children around her that she's looking after. This is Moon energy, you know? Right. And she had been had like really bad news to tell him at one point but delivers it in a, in a very you know somewhat gentle way yeah yeah you know she 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 she's she's the mother uh, you know all right so going back to valens before we move on just because you mentioned um you're talking about like possessions and like hoarding and that which accumulates that which you accumulate and that is one of valens's significations is possessions um, gathering of the math masses, gains like material gains, but also yeah. expenditures. So it's like that which you you gather, so, and then that. Yeah. that so that's all have. our finances, really. Yeah, there's you, some. You know, there's something there also. I mean, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying the second house is not finances, or you know, Venus or Jupiter can't reflect finances, uh, or the rule of your second house. But fundamentally, when we really want to. Get, you know, that first place where we should check is the moon. We should check the condition of the moon because she's letting you know how much gains are we entitled to? Can we get, you know, uh, what's the expenditures also too? Yeah. So possessions. And then, um, one of the interesting significations is fortune or, uh, 2K in the ancient, like Greco Roman, you know, mythology and the notion of 2K as the, as chance, as that thing that's kind of random, but it's like an even distribution, and chance can be very fickle. And in that way, sometimes the moon is treated as somewhat fickle because it it waxes and wanes and it changes very frequently compared to any of the other planets. So there's sometimes this unstable quality that, that gets associated with the moon because of its changeableness. Yes. And I was actually going to also add something to that in regards to the fortune. Because we know we have a particular point in our chart that's known as the part of fortune, um, which is based on whether it's a daytime or nighttime, the sect, um, whether you're, you know, th there's a particular way where you count from the moon to the sun. Obviously, if it's a nighttime chart, but you count from the sun to the moon, if it's a diurnal chart and you take that same distance and you project it from the ascendant. However, the part of fortune or the two major uh, it, known as Arabic parts, or, 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 or the or the lots, uh, known as, also known as the lots. The two major ones, as we know, are the part of fortune and the part of spirit. Mm -hmm. Now, the part of fortune is always associated with the moon, right? Whereas the part of spirit is always associated with the sun. So that's to do with more spiritual, mental kind of uh, uh, situations. Whereas the part of fortune is to do with where we can be most fortunate or where we can perhaps maybe cultivate something in the physical world, on the physical realm. You know, uh, we, we count maybe the 10th house from the part of fortune and that can maybe give us, uh, you know, an, another particular place and what kind of occupation or work that we have. So, but again, the point I'm trying to make is that the part of fortune is associated with moon. It's lunar in, 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 in its, in its manifestations. So if the moon is 
one of the key ingredients or basis of how to calculate the part of fortune, there should be no surprising that the moon itself has inherent within her an element of our fortune that we are destined to uh, to have or to cultivate or, or something that I feel with the moon it's um it shows us something that we we it, it's something innate it's something that we're born with um we can cultivate that or we can make that or we can improve on that we can expand on that based on our level of consciousness but it's something that's already there so by looking at the moon placement in a natal chart it can give us a very good idea of what kind of fortune is it that you are born into? Yeah, I love that. That's great. And that's actually why I put the Wheel of Fortune in connection with um, that concept of fortune or chance or 2K in on the cover of my book um, entitled it Hellenistic Ast- Astrology, the Study of Fate and Fortune, because while they conceptualized ancient astrology as the study of fate and, and using a birth chart to learn a person's fate, it also had to do with that sense of fortune or chance or allotment, yeah. and that a, a system based on chance that could study something, a uh, chance-like phenomenon, like the notion that at the moment that you're born, that the alignment of planets, which is sort of um, there at that moment and is not controllable, can tell you something about your future in the same way that when you shuffle like a deck of tarot cards and pull a few cards, that that random sense of allotment that there can be something meaningful or purposeful about yeah. um, that you can learn about the future from that. Yeah, definitely. I, I really love that the, the cover that you use there on your on, on your book. It's really appropriate, and the title, "The Study of Fate and Fortune," um, because there tends to be this idea that you know fate is something bad or negative, um, and fortune is always has to be good and you know full of riches and wealth and, and, and things of that nature. But I, I feel there, there are different levels of fortune and there are certain fortune things that we may have in our life or fortunate things that we may have in our life that may need cultivating, that may need working on. Um, they, they need improvements uh, in some way. And again, if we go to the moon, she tells us a lot about that. Definitely. Um, all right. So the last thing before we move on for from Valens, we're spending a lot of time on Valens, but I think, and we've got several other authors. Key. <laughs> yeah, I mean, so foundational. It covers so many foundational concepts. That's really useful. I just want to show a diagram of the significations of the planets that, or significations of the twelve houses that Valens gives, yeah. because I think that that, um, again, looking at the third house, kind of keys us in on a little bit more in terms of how. The significations of the moon and having her joy in the third house, how that kind of rubbed off on the meaning of the third house in ancient astrology. Yeah. So here's a, a diagram that lists the significations of the planets and some of the significations that Valens gives for the third house are siblings. Yeah. Um, so like you said, connecting siblings with the moon, yeah. living abroad, so travel. Uh, but also he says relatives and uh-huh. queen, which is opposite from the ninth house where. The king is signified. Yeah. Um, let me see what else he says about the third house, if that's all of them or if I skipped any. So, uh, sibling, yeah, siblings, living abroad, queen, authority, friends, relatives, revenue. Yeah. Uh, so, I guess that's it for the third house. The only other thing that Valens mentioned that was relevant that you started talking about a little bit was 
um, like moving around and notions of movements because the moon is one of the fastest. Yeah, um, pl- it is the fastest of the celestial yeah. bodies. And 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 hence why also as well again that third house because uh, one of the interpretations of the third house is short distances or short travel. Yes, you know short travel obviously is going to be quick. I want to jump in my car. I want to go down the road. Or, you know, I'm traveling, I don't know, five, 10 miles, 20, 30 miles or something. You know, th- th- these are like short distances. Um, it's not so much, it, it's not that the, the third house doesn't or, or cannot be a long distance because a uh, third house can be long distance. It can be abroad. It can be actually also in another country also as well. Um, um, but there's something about the thing is with the third house because, and, and this is the distinction I make between the two. Um, the ninth house is travel, and the third house, opposite house, also is travel too. So people then say, "Oh well, I thought the ninth house was travel. Well, uh, why is travel also in the third house too?" But I think they're two different things. Insofar as the ninth house, it's more concerned with the destination, whereas the third house, there's something about the liminal space. It's it's what's happening in between. Mm. What's happening from the moment you leave one point and you're going to the other? It's what's happening in between, and that's where the connection actually happens. And I, I often find people who have very prominent third houses, moon in the third house. When I start explaining about that liminal space, that's where they feel, um, you, you know, the, the the energy of that moon or you know, the energy of that third house really starting to make sense. That's where the connections all start to make sense for them. Uh, whereas the ninth house is more, oh, well, I'm going to, uh, you know, Chicago or something like that. I'm going to fly to Chicago. M- my aim is on what's going to happen when I get to Chicago. <laughs> I'm not necessarily concerned with what's happening in between. As a matter of fact, I don't even like the stuff in between or the stopping at the checkpoints and at the airport and getting my passport checked out, or standing on six hours on a flight. I'm, I'm, I, I, don't, I just want to get to my destination, <laughs> you know, because that's where the adventure is. But the third house is much more what's actually happening. So the third actually may be far more actually concerned with travel than actually the ninth in some aspects. Mm, okay. Yeah, and I think... I like just going, let's see, going back to Valence's significations on that second page, he says, the home, boats, travel, and want, wanderings. Wanderings. So yeah. it's right there in like the second century, but it's not just, it's travel, but also I think boats was interesting because a boat is like something that you, it's a vessel for travel, but also it's like something you, you get inside of um, in order to travel to a different place. Exactly. And, and, and a boat is something that travels across water and, and the moon rules the waters. Yeah, good point. Um, so, and then that was another good point where third house is often because the moon moves faster, and so sometimes it tends to be in, in later f- traditions of astrology more associated with short distance travel versus the sun, which has its joy in the ninth house. Oh, the ninth house tends to be associated with long distance travel, and the the sun takes longer to move across the signs of the zodiac and is slower. Um, I also think that ninth might sometimes be associated more with local travel or short distance travel because. It's the house that's right next to the fourth house, which is the house traditionally associated with your home and living situation. So um, the ninth house being right next door to that or being the house that declines or moves away from the fourth house, uh, therefore is just like moving around in your neighborhood or moving around sort of locally in some sense. And by extension, it also sometimes then signifies 
um, your neighbors. The third house can signify your neighbors, or sometimes other miscellaneous relatives get yeah. sort of thrown in the the third house. Yeah, My cousins and you know, next of kins and stuff. You know, sometimes can be there in the third. Um, right. But yeah, th- those uh, you know, the third house can bring up that the immediate surroundings, hence the neighbors. Um, uh, so what's going on in that immediate environment and your immediate surroundings, you know, the, the third house will, will, will tend to, you, you know, your local area as opposed to maybe something foreign, which, which will be more, tends to be more ninth house. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, all right. So there's the joys of the planets again, moon in the third house in the place of goddess. We've touched on how the moon is the mother. In some text, they talk about how I think Valens or somebody says that the sun signifies the father or the person who acts as a father figure to the native. And I think that's an important distinction that might be worth mentioning because that's also true of the moon, where the moon signifies the mother, but also the it can not sometimes not necessarily just be the biological mother only, but sometimes the one who acts like a mother yeah. to the native yeah. in some sense. Yeah. Yeah, because when we speak about mother, we have met mothers on so many different levels. We have our biological mother. Um, we have Mother Earth. Um, so our connection with the Earth, our connection with food, because our food comes from the Earth. Mm-hmm. Um, we have the mother, if you want to say, the mother state, or the nanny state sometimes it's referred to as. So the government on many levels, although it may seem like it's patriarchal, it's actually, there's a mothering quality or archetype that is, that is operating within that. Um, oh, you know, uh, if you're homeless or you don't have a job or, you know, certain governments will try to put maybe certain structures in place that will, you know, nurture you, give you some money to buy some food and have shelter and buy yourself some clothes. Um, again, the, all this physiological well-being, you know, uh, it, you know, it's protected by that. So we have different levels or different areas of mother. So, uh, uh, so again, our biological mother. For some people, they may, um, depending on the circumstances, there may be situations or issues around maybe one's biological mother. But again, there could be a, you know, a surrogate mother. You know that. You know that's. You know that's a mother. Um, who's looking after you? Who's the nanny? Uh, um, uh, you know, who, who, who's, who's looking after you? What kind of, and again, when, when we look at the placement of the moon in the chart, it will, the sign, the house, the aspects will allow us to understand, will shed light on the kind of conditions that we are going to be predisposed to based on the placement of our moon. What kind of mother did we have? Uh, aspects to the moon will indicate perhaps maybe circumstances uh, or, or you know what kind of circumstances there were were they for the the the, the good or for the ill uh, you know were they challenging circumstances were they easy easy circumstances based on um uh, again it's all there in the natal chart so the chart shows us and tells us the story about our relationship to mother our connection with mother what kind of nurturing did we get from mother you know, uh, um, so yeah, it's it's all there. All right, so I wanted to transition into the next section. We've talked about Vedius Valens, who lived in the second century, 
But I want to jump forward several centuries to the 17th century and look at some significations of the moon according to uh, one of the last great traditional authors, which is William Lilly, and his book, uh, Christian Astrology, which was written, I believe, in London in 1647 or so. so. Yeah, that's correct. So I've got a picture of it. I wrote down the significations that I'll read, but I wanted to show this little picture of an original copy of Lily where he talks about the moon and her properties and significations. And he gives a bunch of different stuff in his introductory text in the first basically full English, uh, full, full text on astrology written in English. And do they still have like? Wasn't I, I heard a rumor that there was like a copy of Lily that's passed down from presidents of the lodge? Is that still the case, or do you? Do you have, <laughs> well, I haven't got my anybody, copy yet. <laughs> you haven't got your copy. Okay, we'll have to look into that then. We're gonna have to I go. I've got my copy yet. It's it's got missing somewhere. I don't know. Maybe in okay. between uh, Nick Campion and Kim Farnell. Maybe I don't know. <laughs> yeah, we're gonna have to go bang on Kim Farnell's door and see. <laughs> yeah, exactly. With that my back? copy, right. <laughs> Uh, okay, let me pull out the written down significations that I have. That'll be a little bit easier to to read. All right, here we go. Can you see that? Yes, certainly. Yeah. Here, I'll make it bigger. All right. So, William Lilly, Christian astrology. He says the nature of the moon. She's a feminine nocturnal planet, cold, moist, and phlegmatic. He says, manners when the moon is well dignified. So, when it's well positioned in the chart, he says, she signifieth one of composed manners, a soft, tender creature, a lover of all honest and indigenous science or ingenious sciences. Maybe you should read this actually. You probably have a better. Do you want to read it? Or? Yeah, a lover of all honest and indigenous sciences. Ingenious. Searcher, I miss in, sorry, ingenious. In, well, I was say indigenous. Yeah, it's tricky. <laughs> a lover of all, all honest and ingenious sciences, a searcher of and delighter of novelties, naturally propends to. Sorry, feel. Th- sharing it through Zoom. I'm probably, it's probably yeah. too small on your screen. Sorry about that. Let me hear all yeah, just I'm take it. in a bit. <laughs> yeah, that's all right. Um, I caught you off guard there. So it says, look, Blah blah blah. Naturally, propense to flit and shift his habitation. Yeah, it's like 17th century English. So we're, so we're yeah. both struggling, struggling a little bit here. Unsteadfast, wholly caring for the present times. Timorous. Do you know what that means? No, I have no <laughs> I need idea. To get okay. my dictionary. Uh, pro, pro, your 17th century English dictionary. Prodigal <laughs> and easily frightened. However, loving peace. And to live free from the cares of this life. If a mechanic, the man learns many occupations and frequently will be tampering with many ways to trade in. So that's when it's well placed in the chart. Right. Then he goes on in another section and says, Manners when badly placed, a mere vagabond, idle person, hating labor, a drunkard, a sot, one of no spirit or forecast, delighting to live. Beggarly and carelessly, one content in no condition of life, either good or ill. Mm, yeah. So that's, that's an interesting um, thing, you know, a little bit of a shift here where he's focusing a little bit more on, you know, personality characteristics. Personality, yeah, yeah, yeah. 
um, but also a really important and interesting distinction that he's making here between um, you know, if the planet is well placed in the chart, he says well dignified versus when it is badly placed. And some of the conditions that might change that would be things like essential dignity, like if the moon was in its own sign or exaltation versus if it if it was in a more difficult sign, but also what aspects does it have from other planets? And are they, let's say, supportive aspects from the benefics Venus and Jupiter? Or if they're um, challenging aspects, like hard aspects like squares or oppositions from the malefic planets, uh, Mars and Saturn. Yeah. Yeah. And and that would make sense. And what I would also say to that is that um, for people listening, uh, I I don't want people who are listening who are perhaps checking up on their moon and thinking, oh my God, my my moon's in detriment or fall, or I've got my moon squared to Saturn. So that's uh, what I will say with those particular characteristics is that, uh, like, Obviously, for the more positive, when when the moon is well dignified, what I would say is that those kind of characters or the, that personality could be more readily accessible. It could be easy for one to uh, captivate that or, or or you know expand on that. Whereas the more negative, if the moon's in a negative place, it 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 doesn't mean that you're going to be you know, a vagabond or, you, you know, you, you know, you're going to be lazy and or, or, or idle and some of the words that he used, but it, it's indicating that that could be something that it could, it could easy, it could happen more easily. Or, or, or it could be something that, or, or a particular character that could be readily accessible that you could easily slip into that kind of character if you're not taking precaution or you're not being aware and, you know, so yeah. Right, like um, I know, in like modern astrology, for example, sometimes like Saturn square the Moon, uh, which is something I have, is something where sometimes people can be predisposed towards like depressive states or something like that, um, which might be a, you're saying like a predisposition or a tendency, but not not necessarily something that has to be that way. Yeah, and and can be mitigated or um, altered, or th- that you just have to take each delineation with a grain of salt. Yeah, yeah. There, there, there is a there, there's a potential for it. Uh, of course, I would say um, so. Like in, in you know the example that you gave, maybe somebody with Moon square Saturn, it could be said that there it's more is it's easier. Maybe we could say for them maybe to slip into a state of depression than somebody who does not have that. But mm-hmm. it doesn't mean that you're going to do that. But yeah, you, you you're more easily it's. It's more, it's, it's that kind of energy is more readily accessible to you or you're more prone to it, we could say. But it doesn't mean that life has to be that way continuously for you. Right. Definitely. And that's a really good point because I had somebody mention, um, something recently. Like they sent me a message through Instagram and they were like, I have this placement. And does this mean this worst case scenario? And I had to write them back and just be like, no, it doesn't necessarily mean that. Yeah. Um, you know, you shouldn't necessarily jump to worst case assumptions about placements, even though sometimes new students can have that tendency, new students of astrology and can have those worries. But most of the time, it's not going to be the worst case scenario. You're just talking about a possible predisposition towards certain types of scenarios. But there's there's a lot of multivalence in how different placements can manifest in a person's life. Most definitely. Most definitely. And and you know, we although yeah, we we do have to look at obviously 
things or from an ind- individually, but we also have to look at the chart as a whole and we have to also take in other particular, um, factors also as well. You know, you, you know, the, whether it's aspects or what sign is it from? What house is it from? Is it what sect is it from? So, um, uh, you know, as you're, you know, you're always saying, um, in many of your, your talks where like, uh, it's, there are mitigating factors, you know, um, and things, you know, may, it may seem a little bit, okay, a bit heavy from one perspective, but when you start taking other things into account, you know, sometimes it's, often it's, it's lessened or it's maybe not as heavy or as bad as you may think it is, you know, so other things need to be taken into consideration as well. Definitely. All right. So what are some things we should take note of in terms of Lily's delineations, aside from those two things we mentioned? I mean, he did mention the um, notion of like changeability does seem to be something he's emphasizing. Yeah. Um, And so that's that's something that's consistent with the moon. You Mm -hmm. know, she's, you know, as you mentioned earlier on, I mean, she changes sign every two and a half days. Uh, She's very swift. She's the fast moving planet. So she's, you know, uh, that's a word that's often associated with the moon she's very changeable uh, um you know which again which is connected with that ebb and flow uh new moon full moon uh you know waxing waning um, so here's so, a diagram yeah. of like the lunar phases that it goes through in the course of a month where if you if you pay attention like ancient sky watchers and astrologers did this where you know not living in in large cities with uh you know electronic lights and stuff you could see much more clearly the night sky and the stars but also the moon and how quickly and how rapidly it changes compared to the other planets like for example saturn which is very slow moving or jupiter we recently saw you know an alignment or a conjunction of those two planets in the sky but it took quite a while for them to move past each other whereas the moon by you know relative comparison just zooms through the zodiac every 28 days and as it said the moon, uh, the sun uh, controls the seasons, whereas the moon controls the days and the months. Uh, the word month actually comes from the root word moon. Um, so there's something again about that, you, you know, uh, in the ancient times, I mean, thousands and thousands of years ago, that that was what, um, you know, humans were looking at. They They saw the sky, like you said, they can see it in the bright lights. They saw the the cosmic activity they saw like ah ah new moon ah a full moon 28 days later you know um you know they've found uh, markings of bones um dated thousands and thousands of years ago with uh lunar calendars marked on them scribed on them um uh, women would have um, um would have noticed again the correlation between ah uh, moon seems to be in the same place my menstrual cycle again has come again. Menor menstrual, that's all rooted again from the moon. So uh, these are things that we, we we see again on a physiological level. Uh, we're seeing uh, the female, the feminine, um, um, if you want to say, acting out this lunar archetype. Uh, you know, again in 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 parts of their body, whether they're giving birth to a child, whether they're having a uh, a particular uh, sensitive or menstrual cycle or period of the month, which all correlate with the cycle of, of you know, of the moon. You know, every, every 28, 29 days, you know, we, we, we see that, you know, that cycle happening. Yeah, that's a really great point. Um, let me show 
solar fire really quickly. One of the things I love about this program the most is the ability to animate it, which is really useful for electional astrology, but also sometimes just in terms of getting oriented with the basic astronomy of how the charts and how the planets move. Um, so I'll animate the chart starting from today. So right now the moon is at 13 degrees of Sagittarius, and I'll animate it so that it moves forward like a few days, a second, and you'll see the moon um, move through the signs of the zodiac and how quickly it does compared to the rest of the planets, just moving all the way around the 12 signs over the course of a single month. So again, just emphasizing that notion of um, she, she's the minute. She's the minute of the hour, or we could say the second of the minute, or the you know minute of the hour. That you know, I liked minute. Like if it was a clock yeah, and, clock, and yeah, it, a minute, yeah, I, yeah, because it would be like two. Yeah. Minute and then the sun would be like the hour. Hour. And yeah. then the ascendant might be like the second. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. Um, okay. So so she's she's real crucial. Right. Um, is there anything else we need to mention at this point from Lily's significations? Um, let me share them again. We spent obviously a lot of time on Valens, but it's like it carried forward a lot of things from that. So it also talks about he talks about like softness and tenderness, and that's probably a good good one for the moon if it's in terms of its natural tendency. If it's if it's let's say well situated, yeah, the moon is soft. She is gentle. Um, she's not she's she's not rough. She's not um, you know the sun is it, it scorches it burns. Uh, fair enough, the sun gives us heat and warmth and light, but the moon is far more receptive far more gentle, far more soft, uh, right. tender. Like you, you don't get like a sunburn from, you know, standing outside in the moonlight, even though you're getting, even though it's lighting things up, but if you stand outside, you can get like heat stroke from the you sun can get, or something yeah. like that. And, and hence why when we look at, um, you know, a planet that's within a certain range within the sun is, is, you know, it's combust, you know, it's too hot, you know, hmm. uh, if a, if a planet's next to the moon, it's not the case. As a matter of fact, if a planet is next to the moon, it, it the moon may be even may be able to offer some kind of tenderness, some softness, some soothing, perhaps even to that planet on some level. So the moon's different. She's definitely gentle. She's definitely very soft. She is, she's the great mother, <laughs> you know, and uh, just how we we predominantly expect mothers to be. Uh, to be gentle, to be soft, to be loving, to be kind, to be nurturing. Those are the qualities of the moon. That makes sense. Um, all right. So other things that are worth mentioning at this stage in terms of some of the traditional stuff are is um, not just the sign of the moon, but the applications of the moon because it's so fast. Um, ancient astrologers tended to focus, there was a doctrine um, in Paulus Alexandrinus, for example, from the 4th century where he talks about the applications and separations of the moon, and he um, he says to look at the moon and what planets it applies to in the next 30 degrees, Yeah, and then different ranges of that will represent different parts of the life and when certain things will manifest during different parts of the life. Yeah, uh, most certainly. and. Because again, the moon is the planet that she's like an anchor that anchors us here in the physical world. 
So when the moon is making uh, or, or, or applying herself to a particular planet, what she's actually doing, and this is where later on in medieval astrology, um, uh, the idea of, um, you know, when the moon is separating from a planet, it represents things from the past, or when she's applying to a planet, it's representing things to come, um, also in horary also as well. Uh, th this is based on the idea that when the moon is applying to a planet, whatever that planet represents, whatever the energy of that planet represents, she's going to draw it down and bring that energy into physical manifestation. So if the moon is applying herself to Mars, she's going to draw down a Martian energy and there's going to be a Martian experience that that individual is going to encounter. If it's a Jupiter, the same thing as well. As well. And that's what she represents. Any, any planet that the moon is making contact with, whether it's applying or separating, it, it, it's energies that she is drawing down. So, um, what I tend to find when the moon is separating from a planet, um, those particular experiences, we tend to, um, we tend to find those particular experiences, uh, well, obviously something that's gone in the past, something that happened maybe earlier in the life of the individual. Whereas if it's, she's applying and she's making her way towards a particular planet, it tends to be experiences that I tend to find that the person will encounter maybe middle-aged or later on in life, depending on how far away um, it is. But it, it tends to be a bit more continuous. Whereas when she's leaving a planet, that energy tends to be waning a bit. Uh, um, uh, whereas the planet that she's going towards tends to be something a bit more full on that the individual will, will, will tend to experience. But any planet that she's making aspects to, she's, she's, she's grounding it. She's anchoring it. She's bringing it into physical manifestation for us. And hence why that's where the idea of the void moon, void of course, this, this emptiness where it's going, where it's not making aspects. I know it's a very rare, especially in Hellenistic astrology. It's a, it's something that doesn't occur too often because they kind of gave a 30 degree, um, uh, 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 you know, uh, orb, you could say. And, um, they also include outer sign boundaries also as well. So it could go across, uh, um, um, so. Uh, that's where that came from because it was seen that if the moon was not making no aspects to no planets, then what is it that she's going to be anchoring? What is it that she's going to be bringing down? What is it that it's going to be manifesting? Well, it's not going to be manifesting nothing because she's not making no contact with nothing. Um, so, uh, 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 and the importance was placed on also what was the planet that she was separating from? What was the last planet that she made contact to? Um, because that was where she was coming from. And again, that's where we get this translation of light, where she's bringing one energy from one planet based on the planet that she's separating from. And she's taking that light and transferring it to the planet that she's going towards also as well. But if she's void, it's almost like there's no planet anchoring her. So that can also be a bit of a, if we want to say a bit of an issue or maybe a bit, a bit problematic. Um, if we do find that kind of configuration in someone's natal charts where there can be certain issues with, again, 
manifesting something can and 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 you know having some kind of connection yeah that's a really good point and and that also gets extended into horary astrology and electional astrology where um, especially with the moon, but also with other planets, uh, separating aspects are said to indicate the past, and applying aspects are said to indicate what's coming up in the future. Yeah, most definitely, it's it's really really important. Uh, and and with electional astrology, you're trying to find an auspicious time, whether it's a wedding, setting up a business, uh, w- whatever the the case may be. You want the moon. Uh, the moon is going to be the key planet that you're 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 looking at to see that, well, where is she coming from and where is she going? And I want you you want to elect a time uh, that where the moon is making some kind of contact with a planet that is associated with what it is you're trying to manifest. What is it that you are trying to anchor? What is it you're trying to bring down into this physical manifestation? Um, and that also lends itself into astro magic and, you know, things of that nature. Again, they would elect particular times when the moon was in a certain aspect with a particular planet because then she was able to ground that planet. Uh, you know. Yeah. Um, so that's a good point about the void of course moon. So I did a whole episode, a uh, discussion about that with Yasmin Boland last yeah, month. Yeah. I saw that. Yeah. And we talked about the three different definitions and the the Hellenistic definition. And then I'm going to do another episode later this month, actually, with Sue Ward, where we're going to talk about the considerations before judgment, where the void, of course, moon was one of those. Um, so I showed a, a diagram all, already, but I also wanted to mention um, this delineation from Paulus about what the ranges are, because as I've been looking into the void, of course, moon origins more, yeah. and thinking about that and realizing that that was part of the origins was just that notion that. Whatever the moon is applying to in the next thirty degrees is going to indicate uh, different things that will manifest in different parts of the life. And if the moon is not applying to anything in the next thirty degrees, then it almost indicates a lack of of anything coming to fruition during that time. And I think that's why the void of course moon in the Hellenistic definition was was often interpreted so negatively, just due to the lack of the notion of lack of um, tangible things coming to. Fruition or coming to completion in terms of either the natal chart or an electional chart or what have you. Yeah, definitely. I I, I once had a, a um well he he still is a client, um uh, a, a client of mine who I've you know I, I see quite regularly, and he he has an unaspected moon. It's not making it's when he was born. It's not making no aspect to no planets. Like for it's almost like. The planets are on one side of the chart, the moon's in another sector, and it's not making no aspects whatsoever. Hmm. By opposition square, it's not making none. And it was when I first did his chart reading and consultation, I, 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 you know, I wanted to, you know, try and, you know, see what kind of relationship he had with mother. Hmm. And and it it was very interesting because the, the word he used, was a really, you know, he, 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 he said to me that there's nothing there. I, I have no f- feelings for her. Okay. A- and, um, there was so a particular, like a, a void or an emptiness. Yeah. There was like this emptiness. He, it's like he couldn't relate. He, he, okay. He knew that was his mother, of course, but then there was no, no connection, no connection whatsoever. It, he right. just didn't, you know, and it was just really funny the words that he was using. Were words that again, I you couldn't, you know, 
it was words that, that it was truly a void of course moon that that's the void that that's what i would expect to hear right you know that makes sense because one of the terms uh the original greek term for an application was sunafe which also means connection yes. or jo- or joining yeah. and um we were talking about this on the last forecast episode of the astrology podcast in the episode right before this one towards the end of that episode and i released a little clip of that on youtube yesterday but we one of our keywords we were coming up for a void of course moon was a, a lonely moon because yeah. it has no relationships, which is what nobody, uh, yeah. with, with any other planets, and that's what an aspect represents as a relationship between two planets. Yeah, exactly. So it, it becomes a loner, it becomes a, a wanderer, it can become idle, it can't manifest things, it can't get things done, it can't seem to complete things. Um, it There may even be a feeling, in, and this is in the natal chart, there could be a feeling of why am I here? Well, what I, I can't, you know, you know, anything I put my hands on just doesn't seem to work out for me. There, there seems to be no, uh, you know, it's almost like there's just a repetition of failure after failure. I, I, I can't complete things. I can't build. You know, these are many of the words that, uh, you know, have been, um, uh, you know, associated with a void of course moon in the natal right. chart. And- and in electional astrology, I think people sometimes say from the traditional statement from Lily was something like it goes hardly forward or something like that. Do you remember yeah. what the statement is? Yeah, it, it can't. It's almost like it can't be completed in some kind of way. It can't be fulfilled. Mm. Uh, you okay. know, if if it's void, of course, no, nothing can. Hence, why they say in the horary astrology, if, if the moon is void, they say, well, nothing won't will will, will come of the matter. Um, I, I don't know how true it is, but there, um, I, I heard or read somewhere that, uh, Nancy Reagan, who was uh, Ronald Reagan's wife, apparently was, uh, she had an astrologer and apparently she, the, when Ronald Reagan was due to have meetings, let's, so let's say he was having a meeting with Russia or with Iran about nuclear bombs or something like that, the, the astrologer would elect a time when the moon was void. For them to have the meeting, so nothing would come of the meeting, so it it kind of would favor the U.S. So, you know that 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 was the, the the old term, and apparently, but I don't know how true it was. It could have just been rumors or lies. I can't I can't confirm how true it is, but it it would make sense. I I could see the sense in it that okay, yeah, arrange a meeting when the moon is void because nothing's going to come of the matter. And in horary astrology, when they bring up a chart and one of the first things that they would look at, they, they're going to look at the moon. They're going to look, they're going to, and once they see the moon's void, then they say, well, in regards of your question, it's not going to happen or, or nothing's going to come of the matter. Nothing can come of the matter because the moon is not in a position where she can anchor. She has the last say as to how something gets anchored in the chart, whether it's natally, whether it's electional, whether it's a horary. So if she's not making no aspects, nothing can be grounded nothing can come of it so it can't move forward it can't manifest it can't work yeah here's so here's the definition of void of course from lily he says a planet is void of course when he is separated from a planet nor doth forthwith during his being in that sign apply to any other this is most usually in the moon in the case of the moon in judgments do you carefully observe whether she be void of course, yea or no, you shall seldom see a business go handsomely forward when she is so. 
So that's the that's the traditional rule for void of course. So we were talking about in the Hellenistic tradition how that was a thirty degree range and it changed. I did want to change later, which we'll get into in a second. Um, I want to share two things really quickly. One is just for those that are still new and still trying to conceptualize application versus separation. Let's imagine you've got a chart where the moon is at 15 degrees of Aquarius and Jupiter is at 14 degrees of Aquarius and Venus is at 16 degrees of Aquarius. So in this chart, the moon is separating from a conjunction with Jupiter and then she's applying to a conjunction with Venus. So in this context, let's say this is an electional chart, uh, the moon would be separating from Jupiter. So Jupiter would be what was in the past leading up to the electional chart or the horary question, whereas the moon is applying to Venus. So Venus would be indicating what is coming up in the future. So this would be traditionally a case of like positive enclosure or besiegement between two benefics. Yeah. And the way that also from a natal perspective, how I tend to approach that is the planet that the moon is separating from in the natal chart is kind of like an energy. So remember what we were saying earlier on about the moon being the receiver, the gatherer. She's also the anchor. So when the moon is moving from a planet, what it's indicating is that that the nature of that planet is something that the moon has already gathered. So imagine somebody traveling and they've already packed their bags. So if the moon was moving from Jupiter, so like in that chart that you just showed now, the moon's moving from Jupiter, she's already packed Jupiterian and jovial things in the bag. However, she's now going towards Venus. So her mission now is to now take that, those goods, uh, uh, uh from, uh, uh, that are of a Jupiterian and jovial nature and to hand them over and to give them now to uh, uh, to, to, to Venus. And the, the relationship between her and the planet that she's meeting is going to let us know what kind of meeting is it? Is it, is it, you know, obviously Venus is a benefic. So obviously that's going to let us know it's going to be a benefic meeting, a meeting of love and, you, you know, a strong union there. So that's how we interpret. So in the natal chart, what that tends to manifest as, what I tend to find is that the planet that the moon is going towards in the natal chart strongly shows a, a very strong theme that is going to play out in the native's life. Hmm. And that theme will often take place in their occupation, maybe in their work, but it will be some something that's really recognizable in that person's life. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, whether it's challenging, whether it's difficult, whether it's great. Again, the planet and the condition of the planet that she's coming from and going to will, 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 will dictate that. Yeah. Yeah. In, in a natal chart, I tend to think of the separating aspect that the moon has as sort of, um, what you're born with and what you come into this life with in terms of what you have going for you or what you have going against you in terms of like your, your parents or your, surroundings or your relationship with them and their situation, whereas the applying aspects are like the things that will develop at some point later on in your life that you will meet during the course of your life. Yeah, 
most definitely. Yeah. So it, it's, it's the moon's actually telling us our, she's already got the life story there. It's already mapped out. We could say the, the, the skeleton structure of it is mapped out. Right. Yeah. Um, so that actually ties us into the Paulus quote. So in chapter 17 of Paulus, I've got the, my print translation here of Dorian Greenbaum's translation of Paulus Alexandrinus. But in chapter 17, and I just took like a little picture of these two pages, it's on concerning the separation and application which the moon makes to the wandering stars. Yeah. And um, I'll just read parts of it really quickly. It says, since the reckoning concerning application and separation happens to be varied, it is necessary to lay out the teaching concerning it. It holds thus, if the moon happens to be in a greater degree than a star in the same sign of the zodiac, she has made a separation from it, just as if a star which has dealings with the moon actually being in the same sign of the zodiac but having more degrees than the moon does, itself admits of an application by the moon. In the same way, if the stars have been found in the zodiacal sign following or leading the moon, actually being within 30 degrees, they hold to the reckoning of separation and application. application. So I thought that was really interesting because it means, yeah. at least at Paulus, it's not just planets that are um, that the moon is applying to within the next 30 degrees, but it's also planets that the moon is separating from within the last 30 degrees, 30 which degrees, is kind of yeah. interesting. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, the, the, like I say, she's 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 the gatherer. So that last planet that she's made contact with, she's gathered something. She's gathered, if you want to say, an experience, and she's bringing it along with her. It's 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 in her bag, right? So then, skipping a paragraph, when he just gives a couple examples of application and separation, he says the reckoning concerning separation and application is always most efficacious when acting in an arc from the first to third degrees um, as as far as the form of the outcomes is concerned. So he's saying like the most important range is the first three degrees of if the moon is applying to any planets in, in the next three degrees. Right. Um, then he says the second tier of the aforesaid tabulation of degrees is that having the number from the first degree up to an arc of seven degrees. So the next degree range is up to seven degrees orb from the moon applying. The next he says, the third in efficacy from the first degree to the 15th. Then he goes on, he says, the fourth tier conducts business according to the reckoning concerning separation and application from the first degree up to the 30th. Um, either separation or application being taken from these later variances possess, possesses efficacy after long amounts of time and not from youth. Mm. I mean making the accomplishment of what will be, whether good or base, from middle age or even in old age. So it's really interesting because then it breaks up the life the, that thirty degree range into different tiers and tells you like what what part of the life it manifests in. When it's going to manifest in, which then by extension, it sort of then makes sense why the notion of having a void of course moon is seen as problematic if it's not applying to anything within thirty degrees because then it's like there's nothing coming up almost within the span of the life that is notable or eventful in some way. Yeah. Definitely. And I know with horary astrology, there tends to be the idea that uh, the void of course is obviously it's, it's the moon not making aspect to a planet before it leaves that sign. 
so um, I, I quite like the idea that the Hellenistic or the traditional astrologers were using there with the whole 30 degrees, because it, that can go past the sign also as well. It can go actually into the next sign too. Yeah. And there's two different definitions um, that we talked about on the last episode. And one of them is that that more modern definition, which is it happens much more frequently, which is that the moon is void of course as soon as it completes the last aspect that will perfect within a given sign. Yeah. And that it's void for it's void of course in the rest of the sign until it changes signs. Yeah. Where it will start applying to another planet. So for example, here's an example chart where let's say the moon is at 26 degrees of Scorpio. Yeah. And the last aspect that it made was a trine to Jupiter at 25 degree of Cancer. So the moon, according to the modern definition, then would would be said to be void of course as soon as it completes that last aspect with Jupiter um, for the next what four or five degrees through the end of Scorpio until it changes signs. So that that happens kind of frequently in terms of the moon using that definition goes void of course every two or three Most days of, basically. Exactly, exactly. So that so so that's a that's a common phenomenon. Whereas. The one laid out by the traditional Hellenistic astrologers would have been a lot less frequent. Yeah, it just happens. As far as I can tell, it, it, it this year and like last year, it only happened once in like August, and this year there's only one time. It can happen a little bit more frequently than that, but not that frequently. It's a pretty you know just a handful of times in a year, times, probably. Yeah, yeah, and I'm more likely to go with that, uh, especially with the description. Of what the void, of course, represents. I, I don't feel that it's something that happens so frequently like that. So it's really, you know, it's it's like I, I spoke about the client of mine who who has that. You, you know, it's I, I've never seen another chart like that. Right. <laughs> you know, it's it's really like a once in a blue moon, you could say, kind of uh, you know, kind of event. So it's not it's not it's not going to be something that's common. Yeah, and there's another. Um, definition, a third definition of void of course, which I tend to actually pay attention to more in practice. And this is the definition of that the moon is not applying to any planets within orb, depending on what orb that you're using. Okay, yeah. Um, mm. So in the Hellenistic tradition, they tended to use an orb of 12 degrees for yes, the moon for the moon. For applying aspects, which is a, about the average daily motion of the moon. It's the average distance that the moon will travel in a 24-hour period is about 12 degrees. And um, just as a matter of practice, it's, it's like there's a separate historical discussion about that that I talked about last month with Yasmin and that Sue Ward and I are going to talk about a little bit later this month when we talk about the considerations before judgment. And she discovered or made a discovery that Lily, she thinks that Lily's definition of void of course was actually this definition, that the moon is not applying with an orb to any planets, and that it was not the the other definition that's the more modern version that that is usually uh, assumed to come so from Lily. Right. Okay. So okay. um here's a diagram for that really quickly. So let's say the moon is at 10 degrees of Aries. And that it's just completed an exact aspect, a sextile with Venus at 10 degrees of Aquarius. And the next aspect that it will make is a conjunction to Jupiter at 29 degrees of Aries. Yeah. But that's a full 19, 19 degrees, degrees away. Away. Yeah. So that's not usually considered to be within the immediate 
application or the immediate orb of the moon, which let's say is 10 to 12 degrees or something like that. Something, yeah. So that means for the next 10 to 12 degrees, it's going to be, according to this definition, void, of course, just because it's not making a close no, right, application yeah, it's not close, right. in the next 24 hours. Okay. So that's that definition. And I think in practice, that's the definition I, I tend to pay attention to the most in terms of electional charts, because yeah. in electional charts, you're always looking for what is the next applying aspects that the moon is going to make, because that's going to indicate what's going to come up in the future after your election is initiated. Most and, and that's one of the most core fundamental rules in traditional electional astrology is you should always make sure that the moon is applying to positive aspects and is not applying to difficult aspects. Yeah. So as a matter of just, um, but traditionally or Hellenistically, they 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 would have said that they would have even maybe considered that a conjunction. You, yeah, that's in the same true. Sign. They would consider that being in the same sign as like a sign-based conjunction. That's a good point. Yeah. Um, and it gets tricky since we're talking about so many, like talking about two thousand years of different history, and I think yeah. It's tricky because the, what void, of course, meant may have changed in different eras, and it also may have been different in different authors. Like I think it may be true that in practice, Lily may have used this, you know, not applying within orb within, let's say, twelve degrees rule. But um, in other earlier authors like Abu Mashar, it almost looks to me like he was paying attention to the sign boundary, and he did think that maybe it had to be. Applying within the same sign, and that he may have treated it. A, there may have been a distinction if it was if there was a sign boundary that was in the way of the application. Way of application, yeah, yeah. So I'll get into that more with with Sue Ward, but I just wanted to point that out as something that, just in a practical sense, if you're paying attention to what the next applying aspects are of the moon in the next twelve degrees, you will tend to notice if you're doing electional astrology on a regular basis. If you've come across a day where the moon is not applying within 12 degrees to anything, it kind of stands out, and there might be some sense of things not coming to a sort of immediate completion um, on those days. Yeah, and 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 with with like that chart that you just used there as an example, what I what I would say there is that if if that was used in some kind of an electional uh, uh, situation, I, I would say. Yeah, the moon is going towards Jupiter, but it's because it's far away. It's probably going to take quite a while before for it to really be anchored and manifest. It's not something that it's going to manifest, you know, anytime soon. Um, so it could be seen as maybe a bit of a delay or something like that. So I would, you know, personally, I mean, I would wait until the moon was much closer to to Jupiter, uh, you know, and and then. Elect use that election. That makes sense. Um, okay, so that's what, of course, Moon. We wanted to touch on that. Let me take a look at our outline about anything before we jump into from here some modern astrological authors and what they said about um, things. So, have we we touched upon fastest moving celestial body? It's the closest body to Earth. It's twenty eight day, roughly. Orbital cycle. Yeah, we did. We just touched upon the average daily motion of the moon, which is that it moves about twelve degrees, give or take, in a twenty-four hour period. Um, we sort of touched base a little bit about um, lunations and about the concept of lunations. I don't know if there's anything more that we need to say about that. Here's some like illustrations, just some like stock art that I got for 
Here's a lunar calendar for 2021, just showing how over the course of the month, each month, the moon goes through its different phases over the course of a year. There's also 12 lunations per um, year, so the sun and the moon will meet up you know, 12 times to form a new, form a new moon over a, a one month or one year period. And that's probably contributes to and is part of the reason why there's 12 signs of the zodiac, because there are 12 lunations each year. Exactly. Yeah. So that's important. Um, let's see, there's the lunation cycle and the notion of waxing versus waning. Uh, we might mention really quickly. So when this when the moon conjoins the sun and then the moon begins separating from the sun, uh, the conjunction itself is when the moon is at a new moon phase, and that's when the moon is at its darkest. Uh, then when it begins separating from the sun, uh, the moon begins increasing in light and it starts getting brighter and brighter and brighter. Um, and that is said to be the waxing phase of the moon all the way from the conjunction up to the opposition between the sun and the moon. Mm-hmm. And that takes about two weeks to complete, I think, the, that that half of the cycle. Yeah. Then the full moon takes place when the moon is opposite to the sun. And the moon at that point is at peak brightness, so that um, the full disk of the moon is illuminated and is radiating light at that point when the, the moon is opposite to the sun. Mm-hmm. Then from the exact full moon forward, the next 180 degrees up until the next conjunction with the sun is the waning phase when the moon starts decreasing in light. Yeah. And the moon starts getting, uh, goes from its brightest and starts getting darker and darker and dar- darker until eventually it conjoins the sun again at the next new moon. Yeah. And there, there has been from even from tradition, uh, uh, where, there's been an association with the um the cycles the lunar cycles also in connection uh with perhaps our personality when certain things are going to manifest in our life so depending if we are born during a first quarter moon or a full moon phase or a, a, a waning moon or last you know a, a last quarter phase has also been associated symbolically with perhaps maybe certain things happening um, also in our life as well. Uh, Dane Rudra as well, um, uh, he wrote a book, The Lunation Cycle, which was a very really good book that uh, he goes into certain kinds of personalities, how when we are born at particular uh, cycles of the moon, if it's, whether it was waxing or full moon, and how that it was it tended to be seen in certain um personality types certain occupations that certain people had so uh, for example people maybe who were born on the the full moon it was seen as people who were you know kind of like leaders or people who were quite famous or or very you know had very prominent roles perhaps in society whereas maybe people who were born just like uh, new moon phase or that early stage tended to have uh, more of a kind of uh, eager, very innocent kind of going out into the world, wanting to learn, you know, new, new things. While people who were born at the first quarter uh, tended to have a kind of life where they were always fighting against something or struggling against something. And, but they made profound breakthroughs. So the different cycles of the moon 
also tend to correspond with certain personality traits and in many cases, even certain occupations that we may um, also take on board in, in, in our lives as well. So the, 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 the lunation um, cycle, it's, it's quite fascinating um, uh, to, to, to look at. Um, it's something that I'm always looking at with clients, with people's charts. Are they born sort of like new moon phase, first quarter, is it waxing gibbous, is it full moon, is it waning gibbous, is it last quarter? Uh, you know, I'm, um, uh, you know, balsamic moon. What is the, uh, the phase that we are born in? Because there's something about the quality of the phase of the, where the moon was at that corresponds to us also as well. And, and let's not forget that that same distance, the, 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 the lunar phase is essentially the, the, the template that we're using to mark the part of fortune in the chart because it's it's the distance between where the sun and moon are we're taking that distance and projecting it from the ascendant so th there's something about that about that lunar phase in which we were born it's very very important and very key to who we are yeah and the lunation cycle and what lunar phase you were born under and the idea of that imprinting some part of your personality um, I know Dane Rudyard wrote a whole book on that, and then Demetra George has also done a lot of work on, and she has this great article on her website. You can just Google the lunation cycle, uh, Demetra George, and she talks about, depending on what part of the lunation cycle you were born in, some of the personality traits associated with that, and has a nice diagram from one of her books where she talks about each of those different parts of the lunation cycle and what the the quality of those moments in time is. Yeah, definitely. So that's a whole topic in and of itself. I'll have to do an episode on it at some point. Um, probably too much to go into today. One thing we didn't mention, which we could mention really quickly, since we're getting into the lunation cycle, is so there's a you know there's one new moon and one full moon each month. Yeah, each month, yeah. And they're always approximately like fourteen days or two weeks apart. Part, yeah. Uh, when there's a sun, where's the, when there's a sun moon conjunction, when there's a new moon or a full moon, and it takes place near the north or south node, the north or south node of the moon, then that will also tend to be an eclipse. Eclipse. If it's close enough to the nodes. Yeah. So if the the easy way to tell is that if it's a conjunction of the sun and the moon next to the nodes. Then it's going to be a solar eclipse because that's when the moon passes in front of the face of the the sun. Whereas if there's a full moon that takes place near a conjunction with the node, one of the nodes, either the north or the south node, then it's going to be a lunar eclipse. So just basic, basic, basic astronomy, but good, good to know as you're learning about the moon and its, you know, its purpose in astrology. Um, let me see if I have any other images related to that to show for our video viewers. Phases of the moon, picture of the moon. There's a solar eclipse. I think this was the Great American Eclipse in 2017. Oh, okay. Um, there's an old painting, famous painting of like an eclipse taking place, and there's a bunch of astrologers, and people are kind of freaked out about it, and sometimes. Eclipses traditionally were sometimes viewed as as negative or as ominous phenomenon because it was kind of like out of the ordinary for during a total solar eclipse. What happens is that it's like bright and it's the middle of the day and everything's going great, and then all of a sudden the moon 
moves in front of the sun and all of a sudden it becomes dark out as if it's like the middle of the night right in the middle of the day and so there was some sense of not just light being extinguished in the middle of the day and that being odd but also of almost like an interruption in the natural order of things where normally if it's like one o'clock in the afternoon it's supposed to be bright out but if it suddenly becomes dark out then there's a, a basic disconnect or there's some sort of disruption in nature in some sense yeah yeah and hence why eclipses are always seen as um, you know, very powerful, sensitive, um, somewhat auspicious, depending on the kind of eclipse, um, uh, you know, times. Um, and, and we know that the eclipses, again, new moons, full moons, you know, they, they're telling us about beginnings and endings. Uh, they're, te- they're telling about the, the planting of, you know, something being planted, the seeding of something and something coming to fruition, something manifesting, something, uh, being, uh, you know, that full moon is when the moon is in her full glory. She's, you know, it's the peak of something, something reaching its heights. And again, getting ready for that, you know, it's kind of like that wheel of fortune, uh, um, uh, image, which you showed earlier on. So the new beginnings and, and the peaks and, and, and the, 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 the birth and the death or, you know, the recycling. So the moon is telling us the story of life and death and of nature. Itself and how we're interacting with that uh, throughout the month, throughout the year. Yeah, and also I like that. That's a really important. Life and death, and also growth and decay. Yeah, and the notion of um, you know generation and corruption as basic, fundamental, biological and, and material prop- properties that are built into the universe and built into the the physical. Um, incarnation that we find ourselves in, that being a part of the cycle, and that really being closely symbolized by the moon through its frequent monthly, um, you know, increasing in light all the way from new moon all the way to full moon, full and moon. then decreasing in decreasing light, in light yeah. from full moon to new moon. Yeah, definitely. Okay, so why don't we jump forward then? So we've covered two traditional sources, and there's a bunch of other ones we could have gone through. I decided to skip over a bunch and just do. Valens from the second century, and then William Lilly from the seventeenth century. Mm-hmm. So next, I wanted to jump forward to the twentieth century. First, with Reinhold Eberton and his his book, The Combination of Stellar Influences, which was published in nineteen forty. So this is the sort of foundational text of a school of astrology known as cosmobiology. Yeah, um, it's kind of taken over some things from. Early modern astrology and traditional astrology, but also from um, Uranian astrology or the Hamburg School of Astrology, also, which is a school of astrology in Germany in the early 20th century. Um, so, this was originally written in German. He was a German astrologer and uh, translated into English by the American Federation of Astrologers. Yes. So, he breaks it into different categories for each of the planets, and he says, at least according to Eberton, he says the principle of the moon is the soul and the female principle. Mm-hmm. So that's a little bit of a difference where he's associating the soul or the spirit with the moon versus like ancient astrology tended to associate it more with the sun. Um, so we'll note some differences, but also some some similarities. Yeah. So here he has a section titled Psychological Correspondence, where he says um, positive points, motherliness, domesticity, Prudence, mobility, changeableness, adaptation, sense of form, memory. Um, negative, repressed motherliness, 
love of comfort, impressionability, a carefree attitude or an easygoing nature, and moodiness. Um, biological correspondence, fertility, the bodily fluids, blood serum, the lymph, um, and then sociological correspondence, the mother, the spouse, the wife, the family, the nation, hereditary qualities or traits as a whole. Yeah. Yeah. So that's Everton. What do you, what do you think of that? Yeah. I'm, I'm just going to the soul. Um, and I know sometimes spirit, the spirit and soul are often used interchangeably by various school schools of thought. Um, from my understanding, the soul is supposed to be, uh, um, kind of, it's, 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 and, and this is one of the reasons why when we, one of the reasons why they use the, the moon. Uh, uh, you know, they draw the, the moon as, as the crescent crescent moon. As, um, as a matter of fact, I read somewhere that the symbol for the moon actually used to be just be half of a circle. Mm, okay. And then later, then they started using the, the kind of crescent moon as we see it today. It was half of the circle. And, and that was meant to symbolize the, 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 at, again, the beginning, you know, if you want to say everything was all one. And then the separation of the sun and moon, uh, so to speak, or, or, you know, in biblical terms, it would be perhaps Adam and Eve. There's the story that, uh, you know, Eve was taken from the rib of Adam, which is from the side. Uh, um, and, and, and that's what the moon is. So the moon essentially is a extraction of the sun, one could say. And that becomes the soul. So uh, supposedly the spirit is meant to be it's solar, it's, it's high up. Whereas the moon, which is the soul, is the one that is drawing that energy down into the physical world. So the soul is something that's very physiological, so to speak. It's the humanistic part of, again, a sense of who we are. And, and I think also as well, I, I, I also drew the correlation. You're based in the US. Uh, we know America has a chart and mm. America is, uh, cancer, uh, sun. Um, so, uh, which is ruled by the moon. And one thing that's always kind of fascinated me with America is that, um, the, I, I always see it as a very cancerian nation. But one of the things that's also struck me is you have this fool. I know it's, it, you, you have this thing. I know it's predominantly amongst maybe Afro Caribbean or black people in America, but they have a thing called soul food. Mm, right. <laughs> and again, I think it's quite interesting that they attribute, you know, food to the soul. There's something about nourishing the soul or that, that fed my soul. So I think that moon, I can see how soul would be attributed or connected with the moon, whereas spirit is much more of a solar thing. I associate that more that with sun, solar, that's more spirit. It's fire. It's something a bit more fiery. Um, um, even when we go into perhaps maybe like ev evangelical churches or something, they talk about the, you know, the Holy Spirit and the fire and, and you, you can see that it's, it's quite solar orientated. Um, whereas moon is soul. It's something a bit more, you know, personal, something inside and a bit more physiological as well. I like that. I can, I can get on board with that. That makes sense to me. Uh, here's the birth chart of the US. Uh, just since you mentioned it, this is the Sibley chart or the Sibley version of the chart with Sag rising, but it has you know, Venus you got, and 
Jupiter and the Sun and Mercury and Cancer. Well, you got all your planets in Cancer. <laughs> yeah, it's a it's a stellium, all right. Yeah, it's a stellium. You know, your chart rulers in Cancer. You know, um, everything. Uh, um, Tenth house rulers in Cancer. You know, it, it, it Cancer is the 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 dominant factor here. Right. Yeah, definitely. And the Moon is in Aquarius. It looks like it's just past the full Moon. Full Moon would have taken place in Capricorn of a few days earlier. All right, so let's see. Back to Eberton. Did we learn anything else? Has anything changed besides that in Eberton? I mean, there's some things the that are that are the same or that are very similar. Um, he did focus on like mobility, which we we've seen before. He also focused on like changeability, but also adaptation, like being adaptable or adaptable, being able yeah. to to adapt to like people mm -hmm. or circumstances i think is a nice extension of some of the like receptive meanings we were talking about earlier yeah definitely and i suppose also as well we have to be able to look at the moon because remember the moon also presides over our instincts mm. and you know it's very instinctual so right. there's something about our the way we live on earth the way we interact with nature where we 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 have to learn how to adapt right um um it, you know i know survival can be a martian thing a mars thing but the, but but there's a strong lunar orientation also as well because we 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 need food we need to survive we need to you know get clothes and you know that kind so th there is that adaptation and and i feel that is strongly a lunar quality you know yeah, definitely. That makes a lot of sense. And also those being like biological, sometimes physiological characteristics of like basic things that you need to survive physically, like to eat or to sleep or um, to have shelter, like your home and your living situation um, and all of those things. And that sometimes um, those inherent instinctual traits are like bodily things that can be quite separate from like intellectually your mind or what you think is moral or like rational or something like that which are are more abstract structures whereas sometimes physiological impulses can be um um things that just come along with or, or come from wherever ancestry or come from different things that have been passed down inherently with you as part of the body or the physical um lineage that you're from in some way yeah definitely all right, that's a good point. Um, one last thing that's connected with that that Eberton mentions that's interesting. I don't think we've seen before is he mentions memory, which I thought was an interesting one because yes, memory is something. It's like memory is something that's like impressed on you. It's like an impression that you receive and you you hold after having an experience, but it's something that you gather together and that like sticks with you in the back of your mind. Yes. Yeah, and um, that's a very good point there. Uh, memory, um, because very often when we speak about maybe memory or mind, it, it tends to be given to Mercury. However, the moon actually is mind, but it's a different kind of mind. Um, it's if if you again also as well when you're talking about memory, again you're talking about holding on to something. Uh, me you know, memories of when we were young or when we were children and things like that, that is all stored by the moon. The moon is the one that restores our, uh, you know, our memory. It's not Mercury. Mercury may be the one that can convey it or maybe explain it or speak it or express it or communicate it. Uh, 
mm-hmm. but it's actually the moon that's actually storing the memory. She's, 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 she's keeping that. She's, she, it's, it's in a storehouse. She's containing it because we have to remember that the moon is the container. You know, she's the storehouse for all of our experiences. So she's collecting or gathering all of those experiences and, and storing them there in a particular place for when it's, it can be reused or ready again. Uh, you know, it can, it, it can, it can resurface. So yeah, the moon is memory. The moon is, it's quite interesting because in Vedic astrology, they attribute the moon to the mind, which is something that we would readily very often in Western astrology say, Oh, that's Mercury. Um, if, if our moon is being disturbed in any way, you know, whether by a transit or whether it's like that in the natal chart, it, it will affect our, our mindset, our memory, how we function as a whole. So there's a very strong link between, uh, moon and mind. And that's one of the reasons why, uh, if we uh, remember earlier on, there was something about the moon being uh, connected with being a drunkard, you know, if the, you know, things like that. So being drunk was something that was affiliated again with, uh, you know, with lo- with the moon, and when when people are drunk, again, they lose their equilibrium. They don't quite know where they are. You know, their their mind they seem to be kind of all over the place. They can't think straight. So this is again, these are all moon qualities here that we're speaking about here. Yeah, well, and it's funny because then also it goes back to the um, that old term that's somewhat outdated, but the uh, word lunatic, which is derived from the word for the moon, which is luna. In I think in Latin, but I just I just looked up a, a definition and on Merriam Merriam Webster maybe it's on Google it says dated um, a meaning is affected with a severely disordered state of mind insane designed for the care of mentally ill people in a lunatic asylum so um, I just thought it was interesting you were talking about the notion of the moon being connected with mind and in, in Vedic astrology where, where that comes through very strongly but even in the Western tradition we have some of those associations. Of the moon, if it's untethered and if it's not doing well, um, fluctuating too fast, and and sometimes a person's mind being, um, you know, wandering too much or what too have much. you. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Um, okay. So memories, and and that can also be that can be like memories that you can recall from storage that are sitting there, and they can be you know recent memories of like what I ate last night versus. More long-term memories of like things that happened in the first years of your life that you may not even remember anymore that were foundational or influential or shaped your personality in very core yes. ways. Yeah. Um, so that's relevant, and then also it might also link back to other notions of like um, ancestral memories or family memory memories or other experiences that are part of your almost like genetic makeup in a sense, but that. You might not have any immediate um, awareness of or memory awareness. of. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, M- most definitely. The the moon is definitely connected with ancestry. It's mm. connected with history. It's connected with the past. Um, um, uh, that's why even even with the nodes, with the whole north node and south node thing, very often the south node is uh, very often I've seen it being associated with. The moon, which is that's hence why they say, oh well, you know, the South Node is your past or your past life or what you came in with, uh, um, whereas the Sun is very often attributed with the North Node or what you're going for, what you're trying to achieve, and things of that nature. So the moon is is it's 
it's it's to do with our past. It's to do with our roots. It's to do with where we were anchored. It's to do with parents. It's to do with um, nurturing, upbringing, our sense of security, all that which is in the past, whether in this lifetime or if you're open to previous lifetimes also as well. I know in, um, for example, in uh, Jewish astrology, when I was studying that for a while, there was um, the idea, there's the school of thought that they said that your moon, your, your moon sign was your previous incarnation sun sign. So there's that school of thought where they say that your moon sign in this life was actually your sun sign in your previous life. So, but again, it's still, it, it's quite interesting that they're still using that, you know, if you want to say that lunar template to do with the past, it's something that's there. You see, the moon in our chart actually may be even showing, it, it, it's showing us something that was there even before we came into existence. Mm. That's connected with our ancestry. That's connected with our past. That's connected with our family. That's connected with the home. It's actually just showing something we're born into that where we're coming from. Right. So maybe roots could be like another good keyword for the moon. Yeah. 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 The past, the roots. Yeah. Uh, DNA, ancestry. Um, it's all there. Yeah. And then one other thing in terms of Eberton. So tied in our discussion we just had was t- tying in especially to that last signification he gives, which is hereditary qualities or traits as a whole. Um, it's interesting he also mentions and and it's a recurring theme, but he mentions the mother, but also the spouse and the wife, in addition to the family in general. And his first principle, he said at the very top, was the female principle. So that might be worth mentioning that the the moon is one of the general significators sometimes for women both in astrology in general or in like a horary chart yeah um where somebody's asking a question but also sometimes in a natal chart of representing women or female figures in a person's life in different ways so it's it's usually the moon and venus that are associated and venus with- yeah yeah that's correct yeah yeah so i can see why they 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 use that with you know the wife or the spouse uh, uh, and again a lot of that also would be associated with the kind of lifestyle um, you know, of those days, because women were generally the you know the housewife. They stayed at home, look after the children, uh, make sure that the the, the house was kept. Uh, you know, um, you know, in in you know, looking after the domestic situations. You know that that was more affairs that belonged to you know the you know the female. Um, that doesn't mean to say that a man can't do it. You know, in this day and time, we do have men who are actually doing that now, where roles are swapping. So uh, again, men have moons too. <laughs> right. So, uh, and I think that's also quite important to also point out that uh, because there tends to be a not—it's not common, but there tends to be this idea that oh well, the moon's more f- because it's feminine, so it, it's something to do with the females and and women. Uh, but no, men have moons too. We just may express it in different ways, but based on the kind of template that society may have, or kind of lifestyle or culture they may express that moons in different ways. Yeah, that's a really good point that astrology, and that's one of the things that I was trying to draw out by showing these quotes from different time periods is that astrology is culturally relative to some extent, and the astrology is always a reflection of the culture that it's being practiced exactly. and yeah. some of the different um, ways that people's lives will be adapted or ways that people adapt their lives depending on what the cultural norms are. and 
that's something important to keep in mind, and it's a discussion that astrologers have when it comes to things today. When it comes to things in astrology, like like gender, gender distinctions is yeah. you know to what extent some of these distinctions are still appropriate versus to what extent do we need to rethink or renegotiate some of these distinctions based on where society is at or where it's going in the present? Yeah, um, and those are that's like an open, ongoing discussion. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Um, all right. So that was a really good point because it goes back to I'm just looking at Valens' significations again, where he does say housekeeping, the queen, the mistress <laughs> yeah. of the house, yeah. yeah, other things like that. Yeah. Um, yeah. All right. So back to. Eberton, that might be it for Eberton. So why don't we jump to the next author that I wanted to check out, so we can cover all of them. We'll jump forward forty years to Rob Hand, Rob Hand, <laughs> the great, the great Rob Hand, in his yeah. book Hor- Horoscope Symbols from 1981. So this was after um, the rise of like modern psychological astrology, and even though there were psychological traits mentioned in Eberton, and Rob Hand was influenced by Eberton. Um, as a significant influence, there's also been an influx of like young Jungian astrology and the mm-hmm. works of Liz Green and Liz Carl Green. Jung and mm-hmm. Dane Rudyard and other astrologers that have pushed astrology in, in an even more psychological direction uh, by this time in the 1980s. And so we'll see that as a difference in Rob's stuff. And this is also before Rob got into traditional astrology. astrology so this is when well, yeah, he was yeah. sort of at his most modern in some sense. Mm-hmm. So here's what Rob Hadn't has to say about the moon. He says, um, it is the idea, it is the idea of where we have come from, from yeah. the source, the womb, the great mother. It is our past, childhood, heredity, or family, both current and ancestral. See, so he's just he's nailing some of the stuff we've just been talking about, yeah, exactly, talking about yeah, really well. Yeah, I couldn't agree with him more. Yeah. It is also bound up with our ideas of country and native land. The action of the moon tends to be unconscious. Either it is part of the structure of the self that has not been examined, though it influences our thinking and perception every minute of the day, yeah. or, or it relates to the to experiences that were very early, even prenatal, and which are therefore not conscious. The moon relates to unconscious assumptions that we have made about life from the beginning, attitudes that we learned from our parents without realizing it. Hereditary mental patterns such as instincts, and very important psychological patterns that arise from infantile experiences, both positive and negative. Yeah. And then I, I think I skip over something. He says, in most astrological literature, the moon is considered the primary indicator of the emotions. So that's I think that's like the first time. I don't know if that was mentioned by Eberton, but the notion of associating the moon with emotions becomes a major focal point. I feel like in modern in modern astrology, in yeah, late twentieth definitely, and early twentieth century Western astrology. Yeah, yeah, we don't really see that word flying around so much in the traditional or medieval times, right? And maybe maybe that's due to like the rise of depth psychology or psychological analysis in the twentieth century, and the notion of emotions being more of a focal point or something. Yeah, definitely, definitely. And maybe it may be shedding a bit of light on perhaps humanity as a whole. Maybe may have been scratching the surface a bit more, or tapping into more what's going on, maybe on the inside in that lunar realm, in that subconscious realm. Perhaps. Right. Yeah, that could make sense. Like depth psychology being an analysis of both 
you know, one's emotion, one's internal state, but also, you know, early early authors like Freud, for example, were interested in a person's dreams also and what a person's dream state had to say about a person's psychology or things going on underneath the surface. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And and he was a Taurus, you know, where the moon is exalted. And if my mind serves me correctly, I believe Jung had moon in Taurus as well, or something of that nature. Um I know he was a Leo, Leo, but I believe he had moon in Taurus or something in Taurus. All um, right. Well, you may you may to, have his chart there. Not, not <laughs> bring, to, bring not it up. For not to fact check you, but I was looking really quickly, and I think you're right. So here's um, Freud's chart. I like being able to do that when I'm having a discussion with astrologers. Just bring the chart up. Bring up the chart. Yeah, just in case that there's any mistake. Yeah. So Taurus. So yeah. So, so then Taurus, and then um, let me see if this will show up. So here's Young's chart. Can you see that? Yeah, I can see Young. Uh, yeah, Moon in Taurus. Yeah. Moon at 15, 15 Taurus. That's really actually interesting. And um, it probably bears study all in all and of itself that Freud had his son at 16 degrees of Taurus and Jung had his moon at 15 degrees 15, of Taurus. Exactly. Yeah. So they, they had like that classic sun moon sinistry. And, and maybe that's worth mentioning really quickly in passing. Just that's supposed to be one of the traditional. Um, Things indicating an important connection between two people in relationship astrology. If um, you share the same sun or moon sign as somebody else, um, that there can be something about the way that you reflect um, yeah. parts of personality back to the other person that is Person, complementary exactly. in some way. Yeah, most definitely. And we know that obviously they had a very strong uh, bond and relationship, and you know. Uh, you know, Jung studied under Freud, you know, that was his teacher, you know, that was his, he looked at him like, like a, you know, as a teacher, as a father figure, you know. Um, and, um, yeah, they, they both made groundbreaking observations in and around people's dreams and how that reflected aspects of their life. Um, and looking into the symbology of the dreams and what it meant and, and how that could, um, again, uh, it, the dreams are, they're the voice of the oracle. <laughs> and people like Freud and Jung were able to understand those symbolic, the, the symbolic languages and what the dream was trying to convey or say to the client who had that particular dream, you know. Yeah. And maybe the moon may be connected perhaps with like sleep or dreams, but also yeah. one of one of the uh, keywords that's coming up here that's brand new in Rob Hand's um, significations is he talks about the unconscious or the, either the unconscious things within the native that he relates to the native that like that which is unconscious, but yes. you you do without realizing it, yeah. Um, as opposed to like conscious actions or conscious exactly. states, yeah, which is much more solar, uh, you know, kind of with that moon tends to be that's why the moon represents our habits again it's instinctual it's stuff that we don't even realize we're doing it's stuff sometimes we catch ourselves doing or or, or you know sometimes we may oh oh my god I, I do do that i don't realize that i actually do that right and it, it, it's that moon you see just operating on sub on that sub level yeah and maybe that's why sun moon contacts and sinistry are good because maybe there's something that the person does about their conscious personality that connects well with some part of the unconscious personality of the other the person other. Or, yes. or something like that. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. One one helps or triggers the other. You know. It's um, yeah. It's good balance. 
All right, let's so that we could stay there for a little bit, but let's move on to the next one. I wanted to do two more excerpts. One of them is from Richard Tarnas in his yeah. 2006 book Cosmos and Psyche, which I always considered because this is one of like the last great works on modern astrology before the traditional revival really had taken off fully. And so to me, it represents sort of a pure distillation of modern astrology. Yeah. He also had some you know, historical background and outlook. So it's not that it completely excludes anything traditional, but yeah. to me, this is a, a good encapsulation of some portions of modern, what he calls archetypal astrology. Yeah. So Tarnas says the moon, that it signifies the matrix of being, the psychosomatic foundation of the self, the womb and the ground of life, the body and the soul, that which senses and intuits. The feeling, the feeling nature, the impulse and capacity to gestate and bring forth, to receive and reflect, to relate and respond, to need and to care, to nurture and to be nurtured, the condition of dependence and interdependence, the diffusely, the diffusely conscious and the unconscious, the anima, the immanent, the centripetal. The home, the fertile source and ground, the cycle of manifestation, the waxing and waning, the internal, the eternal round, the ruler of the night sky, of the diffusely visible and the invisible, multiple sources of luminosity within the encompassing darkness, the polycentric, yin, the whole that contains the part in potentia. Luna and all lunar deities, the great mother goddess, together with aspects of the child, Puella Puer, constituting the relational matrix of life. So that's um, it's it's interesting because we were speaking about the movie The Matrix. Another thing that jumps out me with the movie in the first one, uh, there was the bit where Morpheus obviously gives uh, Neo offers him the blue or the red pill, but when he takes the pill and goes into the coma, he, it, one of the first things you see is him being in a pod. Mm. And you see all these great pods that look like eggs. And it, so that's the matrix. You know, the womb is the matrix. This earth is a matrix. It's a, it's a system that's holding us. It's containing us. It's anchoring us in some way, shape or form. This is what the moon represents. The moon is the matrix. Right. And the physical life that you're born in. Because it's like when he wakes up at that point, he realizes that his he's been living in like a dream state. A and dream, his mind exactly. His mind has been in the simulation, but his actual physical body is like being kept alive through like tubes and stuff. Exactly. Um, yeah. And that that was a much different experience of what his body was doing compared to where his mind was elsewhere. Mind, exactly. Yeah. So one of the things that's mentioned here that we didn't touch base on, even though it was mentioned Way back in Valens is um, he, that Turnus mentions is that he mentions um, that which senses and intuits, and that's actually a really good point because one of the significations that Valens gives that we we glossed over was he said that it signifies I think he said the left eye. Yes. Um, so the both of the luminaries, the moon and the sun, were traditionally associated with the eyes, eyes, and to some extent with like sense perception, and that. Sometimes is actually a very literal manifestation where um, aspects to the luminaries can sometimes indicate 
things that have to do with the person's eyesight and vision and ability to see and perceive things. Yeah, definitely. Uh, because the right eye was associated with the sun. Um, I think we get even certain aspects of that in, uh, in the Egyptian myth where, where, where you got the eye of Horus, for example, which is again, very often, you know, uh, the, you know, the right eye. Um, and so one is again, solar eye to be able to see in the day to be able to see that which is which we're conscious of which is and the other is again the ability to be able to see in the darkness in the night that, so that it you know that is the lunar you know and it's quite interesting also as well because when we look at the moon just going back to the houses we know she has a house of joy in the third but that when the sun is there it's round about there there round about is where it's the known as the most darkest point in the night, mm, right? In, when he's transitioning from the fourth house to the third house, is is you know technically kind of midnight ish, you know, one o'clock in the morning. It's round around of it, depending on the season, of course. But that's when he's making his transition from that fourth into the third, which is the most densest part of the night, the the, the darkest part, and that's where the moon has her joy. Yeah, that's a really good point. Um, let's see, and it makes me think of also like that notion of um, the luminaries being associated with seeing. And in the ancient world, some of the ancient optical theories, they believed that um, there were two optical theories. One of them was that there's rays emitted from the eyes, which then fall on different things that are within their field of vision. And that's how we see through a ray being emitted from the eye and then hitting something versus there's another theory that rays are instead received by the eyes and that it's through receiving these visual rays that we're able to see and perceive things. Right. And there was also a mixed view, and I think this was the view of some of the ancient astrologers that the eyes can both emit as well as receive as well. Yeah. rays of vision. Yeah. And I think this is actually tied into the aspect doctrine and tied into the traditional rulership scheme where the sun is said to emit, Myth, and yeah. so it emits rays on the right side. Let's say going from Leo in its domicile to a sextile ray to Venus, and a square to Mars, and a trine to Jupiter, and an opposition to Saturn. Saturn yeah. Whereas the moon was said to receive, yeah. And I think the rays were conceptualized then as going from the other planets, um, like Saturn and Capricorn, and the moon receiving it in Cancer, or Jupiter in Pisces, and the moon receiving it in Cancer, or Mars in Aries. Sending a square to the moon in Cancer, or Venus and Taurus sending a sextile. Um, so that's like that that ancient optical theory of um, rays being emitted or being received is tied in with with that domicile scheme. Yeah, makes perfect sense. Yeah, um, but it's funny how sometimes that can show up very literally if you have major aspects or transits to the sun or to the moon. Sometimes it can show up in things happening. Like events that relate to your eyes, yeah. Um, sometimes that can be you know good things, but other times it can be challenging things. Like I, I've had like a challenging transit and had like an eye infection or something like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've seen that as well, where people have, uh, you know, certain difficult transits to uh, the moon, and there's been problems, uh, uh, literally as that to the left eye. You know, mm. you know. All right. So, is there anything else? There's one more quote I want to read, but is there anything else about Tarnus that stands out that's worth mentioning, or are we ready to move um, on? Yeah, if we can just go back to what um, he used a lot of uh, 
very uh, wonderful keywords there. Yeah, like you, there's stuff like the anima, for example, yeah. which is a whole thing, and yeah, um, the psychosomatic condition of foundation dependence, of uh, dependence and interdependence, um, mm. which is quite y- y- um, interesting because the moon is, you know, we are all dependent on something. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, the sun is more kind of individualistic. It's more independent. Um, whereas the moon shows us the part of us that we are dependent upon. Uh, what is it that we look to depend upon? We rely upon it as a source, maybe food, a sense of security, uh, both physical and emotional. Um, so, we are all dependent on something in life. We all need to feed on something in order to be able to exist, in order to live. Uh, we need a kind of food. We need a kind of liquid, kind of water. Um, uh, 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 humans try to structure society or try to make society in a particular way that can sustain us as, you know, human beings or that can keep us in a particular kind of system in an orderly kind of way. Um, so, that's very important as well to also understand that we need some, some, we depend on something. You, we can't be totally, there's a part of us that is independent, of course, but we're not totally independent. No, nothing is totally independent. Everything depends on something in order to coexist. And, and th- th- that's what the moon brings us in as a unit. Hence why it's connected with the family. It's connected with the home. You know, nation, as Robert Hand said earlier on, it's connected with nation. It's connected with country. You know, it's it's all of that because that sense of we are a part of something bigger. We're a part of something larger. We're part of a family. We're a part of a grouping. That's what the moon's purpose is about. That makes sense. It makes me think of the moon and its placement in the chart being where are you um, receptive and um, adaptable, but also where in your life do you make room for other people to sort of adapt to them as opposed to the opposite, which is asking other people to adapt to you because, which is more of a solar thing of like the sun just sort of shines and is what it is and puts its, its light and its rays out there, whereas the moon um, can tend to sometimes make room for other people or find ways to be more adaptable. Um, and adaptive, and that can manifest either literally or in like psychological sort of traits. Yeah, most definitely. All right, so I want to squeeze this last one in here since we're almost up to like three hours on this podcast. No problem, man. <laughs> so the last like I said, one we could be here for the next three months, <laughs> right? It's it's, it's, it's uh... well, only you know we're one planet down. There's only like a. You know, nine planets to go. So there's still still work to do. <laughs> still work to do. <laughs> yeah. Um, so let's take a look at the last quote that I wanted to read is from Demetra George and her 2009 book Astrology and the Authentic Self. And I wanted to use this one as the last one because Demetra, you know, started out as a modern astrologer and and was very similar to Rob Hand or to Richard Tarnas, yeah. but then she got into ancient astrology and studied, you know, Hellenistic and medieval and Renaissance astrology. And this book that she wrote in 2009, Astrology and the Authentic Self, was one of the first real attempts 
it felt like at least for her to synthesize those two tradition the ancient and the modern traditions and to try to bring them together so i think her the entire book but some of her delineations represent a bridge between those two worlds yeah so here's what she says for the moon she says the moon is a general symbol of the body in counterpoint to the sun which is a general symbol of the mind in and of itself, the moon signifies the ways in which the impressions of our early childhood conditioning have imprinted the patterning of our bodies, our instincts, and our emotional responses to life, all, precogniz- all precognitive faculties. When we respond to situations based on our instincts and feelings, when we act without thinking, quote unquote, these behaviors often can be traced back to what we experienced in early life when we were under our mother's influence. As such, the moon colors what makes us feel nurtured and secure, how we express nurturing towards others, and how we cope with emotional stress in our lives. Like the ocean tides that are regulated by the lunar phases, the tides in our bodies, as the ebb and flow of our moods, are under the domain of the moon. While the moon continues to symbolize all these other qualities, when evaluating its role in terms of the life purpose, we must see it as pointing to how an individual brings the conceptual vision of the life intention, as depicted by the sun, into the physical world by grounding it in the daily actions of everyday life. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. Great. Yes, it really ties together a lot of those pieces from you know the ancient and modern traditions into sort of cohesive whole. Yeah. So I'm trying to think, um, you know, if there's anything we should take from that. I mean, I like the notion of the daily actions of everyday life, and again, that notion of the moon being the fastest planet that we we might associate with, you know, the days. Um, as opposed to the sun and associating that with like the month or more long-term or slow things. Yeah. Um, so our, our day-to-day life in some sense. Yeah. And hence why also we, um, for um, people who are into astro weather, for example, you know, who um, can uh, look at the daily charts and be able to see how it is going to be weather-wise, uh, you know, uh, um, you know, pay very close attention to the moon because the moon, again, we know travels at least 12 degrees in the, you know, uh, 24 hour day. So depending on what aspects she's going to be making, um, the kind of aspects to the different planets will give us a very indi- a good indication of, um, how the weather for that day perhaps is going to be influenced perhaps uh if we're gonna you know if it's if she's aspecting mercury we may expect a bit of wind or something like that or um if she's aspecting uh venus it may be a bit you know very harmonious if she's aspecting the sun it may be a bit more warm or jupiter um if she's aspecting saturn it may be a bit more cold or a bit more harsh so um because the moon is able to do that she's traveling so fast within within a particular day she will be making different aspects to different planets at any given time. Yeah, that's a really great point. And you can see that. I mean, on days when like that's one of the things I use like the animate feature for in Solar Fire, and I'll have like a clock up um, you know, on a separate screen just throughout the course of a day, seeing what the moon's doing or what the different rising signs were, or 
I'll have it on my phone on SolarFi on Astro Gold, where you can just pull up um, what the current chart is of the moment. And when the Moon, you know, is applying to an exact opposition with, let's say, Mars in a day chart, that's a much different energy than the Moon applying to like a conjunction with Venus in a night chart or, yeah, or something yeah, like yeah, that. Of course, most definitely. And you can kind of sense that in some. Not intrinsic way, but on some core level, you can sort of see that and feel how that is on a day-to-day basis, and how different days are experienced differently depending on what the moon is doing. Yes, and how rapidly that can change during the course yes. of either a, a twenty-four hour period or over the course of like a week or a month. Yeah, yeah, most of. Yeah. All right. Um, so that was all I had in terms of quotes from different astrologers that I wanted to go through. Um, we've actually touched base on just about everything in terms of that we wanted to go through in the um, outline. There's a few points that we, you know, could have gotten into. Like there's the secondary progressed moon. Yes, that's a whole thing we don't necessarily have to get into. <laughs> into yeah, uh, I think I might do an episode uh, with Kelly on that at some point once Kelly Surtees once she finishes her book on secondary progressions. Yeah. Sometime later uh, but you, this year, you've, you've got a you've got a an episode on secondary progressions. I remember watching it a few yeah. years back, I believe. And I did that with Kelly Surtees, and we may have touched on the secondary progressed moon in that. So people can just Google secondary progressions. Yeah, um, which, which in, I find to be one of the best predictive uh, if, with progressions. Mm-hmm. Uh, the progressed moon for me is perhaps one of the best. Predictive uh, techniques or tools that one can actually use. Uh, the, the progressed moon works like a charm right. to the degree you can see events manifesting and happening. Yeah, definitely. The secondary progressed moon is very because that's with secondary progressions. You just um, you look at the ephemeris basically, and you just treat every day after the person was born. As a year of life, life, yeah, and so you know you count how many years old you are right now. So, for example, I'm 36 years old, so I would count 36 days after I was born and look at the chart for that day, and that chart will somehow reflect some of the experiences I'm having think, right now yeah. in this 36th year of life, and especially the, the position of the moon and the the aspects that it was making on that day yeah. are are super descriptive about what you'll experience in that year. Yeah. And that's another key point there from that perspective to understand that when we were born, within a month after our birth, the moon had transited every single planet in our chart, had touched all of our planets in our chart by every aspect possible. Mm-hmm. And if we're using that template as the progression, we could say, that the moon has kind of set the tone within that first month after we were born, has set like the tone, has, has made the structure based on each planet that she's touched and how that's going to play out in our lives further down the line. So 10 days after we were born will equate to perhaps 10 years after we were born. 20 days after we were born will be 20 years after we were born, 30 and so on and so forth. The moon has, she's already set that up for us. She's already grounded. She's touched those planets. So she's anchored them and she's anchored them there. So when we come to that point at a certain age, whether it's age 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, we will experience that. 
So it's the moon that's, she's setting everything up. Right. You know, she's setting that foundation. That makes a lot of sense. And that's a good point. And also that means when you're 28 years old, that also then is the first time that the moon will have completed approximately a full cycle around the zodiac. Exactly. In your secondary progress chart. And that's that also kind of coincides with the Saturn return, which occurs between the ages of 27 and 20 or 27 and 30. So the Saturn return is treated as a big deal in and of itself. And as you know, ending of one cycle and beginning of a new cycle in your life that lasts for about 28 years or 30 years. But knowing that the secondary progressed lunation cycle also completes around that tw- time, around every 28 years or so. Yeah. And knowing that that's ending one cycle and beginning a new one is also important in that context. Yeah, most definitely. Yeah, for sure. Okay. Yeah. Um, let's see. So that. Um, I wrote down really quickly this morning one interesting part about the Indian tradition is the Chandra Lagna because of how much emphasis is placed on the moon in the Indian tradition, partially because in Indian astrology, their original indigenous astrology was based on the nakshatras, which is like a 27 or 28 sign lunar zodiac that's about what 12 or 13 degrees each. Yeah. Um, but one of the things that Indian astrologers do that's somewhat unique is they'll not just pay attention to houses derived, uh, whole sign houses derived from the ascendant or the lagna, but they'll also do a separate chart with houses derived from the moon sign yeah. and then do basically whole sign houses from the moon. Moon, yeah, yeah. And that is a technique actually which was somewhat practiced also in the West. And where you where I saw that. Was when I was learning uh, uh, um, with Robert Hand the um, uh, the seven ages of man. Okay, and what you do with the seven ages of man is uh, basically you got the order in the Chaldean order, which you showed earlier on, from Saturn, from the slowest planet to the Moon, who is the fastest planet. Mm-hmm. And what happens is working back out. So then you start again. So basically. Uh, what happens is each planet gets a certain amount of time or a certain amount of years. Um, so the moon gets like four years, Mercury gets 10 years, Venus gets eight, you know, and so on, you know, so on and so forth. So what happens is when we take the chart, if you take the chart and look at the first four years of your life, but what you do is you the moon on the ascendant. So wherever the moon is in your natal chart, put the moon on the ascendant and look at that as a chart within itself as the first four years of your life and look at the transits that were going on during that time. And then when it comes to Mercury for the 10 years, put Mercury on the ascendant and then put Venus on the ascendant. So they were using those techniques, but it definitely in Vedic astrology, it's something that they really emphasize on Looking at the Chandra Lagna, you know, it's very, very important. It's a very important Lagna. And again, and looking again from the moon, because the moon is the most physical, most basic, fundamental point part of the chart. Yeah, definitely. And I thought in, in, in Hellenistic astrology, part of the other analog is, um, you know, they would do how Valens will do houses from the ascendant, but the other point that he'll drive houses from is the lot of fortune or the part of fortune where whatever sign. The lot of fortune is in that becomes the first whole sign house, and then the sign after that becomes the second house, and so on and so forth. 
And of course, the lot of fortune, as you said earlier, is the lot associated with the moon. Moon, yeah. And so I always thought it was interesting that they've got that in the Hellenistic tradition and then in the Indian tradition. It seemed like the concept of lots didn't really carry over. Um, but they almost like kind of said, you know, why instead of using that mathematical point, we'll just use the moon itself and use that as the alternative ascendant that they'll draw houses from. So there's that interesting parallel of having a a desire to use some sort of lunar ascendant in both the ancient Hellenistic and ancient Indian traditions. Yeah, definitely. All right. So that is something. Let me take a look at our outline. We've covered so much ground. Um, <laughs> I'm kind of I'm kind of astonished. I didn't think we'd pull it off. You're pretty you'd always told me, you've been telling me for months, like this we got we got plenty to talk about. This is gonna be a great episode. Uh, the moon, it keeps going on and on. Um, I, I mean I I mean I'll be honest with you, I've, I, you know, sometimes I see clients especially when I see that they've got the nocturnal charts and I'm speaking about the moon and, and you know, you know, it's meant to be an hour consultation, like first 30 minutes, 45 minutes is gone. I'm still on the moon. Right. <laughs> you know, yeah. I've moved. <laughs> and that actually reminds me of something I was just, I was about to say, but would have forgotten, but that um, I, so I do derived houses from the lot of fortune, but I do, I would advocate we talked about sect and the notion that you know if you're born during the day, the sun might be more important for you, and if you're born at night, the moon might be more important. Yes. And when I do horoscopes, when I do like a monthly horoscopes or yearly ones, yeah. usually I say look at these from the perspective of your rising sign. Um, but I do think you can also look at it from the perspective of especially your your sun sign if you're born during the day or your moon sign if you're born at night. Yeah. And that can be a, a perfectly valid. Way to approach things and a useful way to approach things, and especially if you don't know, let's say you don't know what time you're born. Time, so you don't yeah, know I was just ascendant. about to say that. I was about to say that that it's something that I've used for many of my clients who have no idea when they were born. Mm-hmm. You know, um, yeah, put the moon on the ascendant, put the sun on the ascendant. Putting the sun on the ascendant is a common one, but um, but yeah, using the moon. And I think if you if you didn't know what time you were born, but you did know you were born. At night, at then night, I definitely yeah. emphasize yeah. the the moon, moon and do yeah. Yeah. whole sign houses from the moon, and moon. you'll be in in decent shape. Yeah, oh, most definitely, definitely, definitely. Yeah. All right. Um, is there anything that we meant to mention or should have mentioned that we did not mention in the context of this episode? We didn't really go into like too much in sign placement or house placement. We did talk about yeah. aspects. Yeah, but um, we may have to know. do a part two. Yeah, that might be <laughs> that might require a follow up since we're <laughs> we need we need to do a follow up definitely. Okay. Um, yeah, for sure we need to do a follow up because the moon is just so in depth. Uh, again, you know, looking at house placements, looking at sign placements, um, looking at aspects as well, where the aspects are coming from. Um, I think you, you know, um, just kind of like going into the overall condition of the moon. Of how the moon is situated in the, in, you know, in the chart, um, how it can manifest, uh, you know, how it will and how it can manifest, uh, as certain experiences in one's life, uh, depending on again, applications or separations again from particular planets, how one's life story is inbuilt in, you know, the placement, uh, you, you know, of, 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 of the moon. And, uh, for me, I know I'm going to be slightly biased because I am cancer rising and I've got that, you know, moon in Taurus. But for me, the moon, uh, and, you know, again, even for people born in the day, again, you still have a moon. And, and for me, it's really fundamental. It's something that I pay 
a lot of attention to when I'm dealing with clients, uh, with my students also as well. It's something that pay attention to that moon. That moon is, is really key. You can't, you can't do nothing without her, you know? Yeah. Well, I like, I want to show your chart really quickly again, just to flash it so you showed at the beginning, but that, that Cancer rising with the ruler of the ascendant being the moon and a night chart exalted and Taurus in the 11th house. And that's such a perfect placement for you being in the 11th house of like friends and groups and associations. And because one, just as long as I've known you, you know, you've always come off as such a, an open and welcoming person and you're always smiling, but also you have a great way of like bringing people together. And now, you know, in your You've been vice president of the Astrological Lodge of London for for years, but now in your new role as pre- president, you're yeah. literally involved in an eleventh house, um, oh, you know, definitely. role of yeah. of bringing together um, groups and, and an organization and helping to bring people together and gather them in a way that really makes sense in a very literal fashion. Yeah, definitely. It's been the story of my life, and uh, you know, I've always been. You know, part of this group, part of that group, and part of this tarot group. You know, I was uh, just the other day on Facebook, and I was just checking. And I was like, I'm a part of like something like 300 and something groups on on Facebook, and I'm like, so I was like, I got to stop now. You know, and then and then I saw another group. Oh, that looks interesting. I'll I'll join them. You know, so I have this tendency to kind of like, you know, you know, groups is kind of my thing. You know, and that's that moon in the eleventh house. It's very strong. Yeah, that makes sense, and. Um, you know, sometimes that's not always the case, or there could be challenges to that where sometimes people have more um an aversion to groups or or um run into issues or things like that. Um, but that's not necessarily the case with you, but it's just a good example of like the moon in that function, that natural tendency that it has to like try to gather, bring bring people and bring things together. Yeah. So with that in mind, that's a great actual transition back to just really wanted to strongly encourage and plug people to, to check out the Astrological Lodge of London. And like you said, you're going to be hosting, you have been hosting uh, weekly online meetings uh, for the past year, basically, right? Yeah. Uh, since last year, October, we started okay. um, uh, because we do have uh, breaks. Um, a little bit like schools, so we'll have an Easter break, we'll have a summer break as well, and, and winter break. Um, but pretty much every Monday, we have two lectures every Monday evening, uh, which start about 7 p.m. UK time. Um, and um, so there's two lectures every week, so we'll have two different speakers, and they speak for about an hour, an hour or so. We open the question, you know, open the floor for questions and answers for people who who are attending. Um, we also have a free beginners astrology class as well, which is held every week as well. That starts from uh, 5.30 until 6.30, and then the main lecture will start at 7, 7 p.m. Um, and currently there's a, a new a beginners class. It's dealing with Vedic astrology, actually, which is quite interesting, which is uh, taught by Sonal uh, Sachdeva. So, um, so yeah, uh, we're pretty active, and, and you can find all the information on our website. Cool. And that is... Um astrologe.co.uk. UK, yeah, that's right. Cool. And then for yourself, I know that you do um, consultations with astrology and tarot, and you also yeah. teach private classes and do private tutoring, right? Yeah, certainly, yeah. Um, so uh, my website is www.sacredplanets.com. Um, so I do, um, um, at the moment, I'm actually putting together the um, classes that I'm going to be teaching for after the 
uh, Easter period. So I'm going to be putting, um, some, uh, some new classes together. It's not, I haven't uploaded them yet on the website, but they will be going up there in the next couple of weeks. Um, I do private tuitions also as well, and I'm okay, available for private consultations, you know, seeing clients and having a look at your chart and, you know, yeah, looking at your moon. <laughs> um, so yeah, um, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty active. Yeah. Awesome. Uh, well, yeah, people should definitely check out your website and check out the Lodge website. Um, yes. It's such a great resource. I was always surprised. Like last year, I ran into astrologers that reached out to me and said that they always listen to the um, podcast, but they didn't. Um, they didn't know any astrologers in real life. And I said, "Where do you live?" And oh, they wow. said, "I live." I live <laughs> they said, "I live in London." And I said, do you, do you have you met Israel?" <laughs> and and they were like, "What do you who who?" Uh, and I told them about the lodge. And I said, "You should check it out." And they were very excited to hear about you. So I hope there's like more people that hear this. Yeah, and, and hear, yeah, definitely. And, yeah, yeah. No, definitely. More 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 people have been coming. We've been getting uh, lots lots more new people, new faces, uh, which is re- you know really good. And it's um, you know a lot of them are signing up and becoming members as well because we offer a membership. So they get a discounted price when they attend each of the classes. Plus they get uh, our uh, magazine, which comes out like four times a year, the quarterly. And um, um, so it's got some pretty uh, beautiful articles in there as well. Um, so yeah, we're, we're, we're very active. We're, we're Yes, we're based in London, but at the moment, because of the whole situation of lockdown, the coronavirus, you know, everything is online. So essentially we're worldwide now. Uh, I mean, we've always been worldwide, but you know, as opposed the COVID situation has catapulted it, it's made it more faster and more readily accessible now. So, right. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thanks a lot for joining me for this today. This was awesome. Thanks a lot I really, for having me, Chris. Yeah. I really enjoyed this. We're definitely going to do a part two, part three, part four. Uh, um, it's, it's, there's so much in, in depth and so much layers again to the moon. And, um, yeah, I would just advise people, you know, pay very close attention to your moon, watch it. Look at the aspects. Look at the conditions. Uh, uh, have a reflect. It, again, we saw some of those words there used by some of the uh, quotes by some of the authors there. Um, the ability to reflect. I think Richard Tarnas put there to you know to receive to reflect. So if we can utilize, watch our moons. Uh, I often look at the moon in my chart and just reflect back to oh when I was young. You know, this is the kind of, you know, uh, how my upbringing was. What was the family like? What was the home like? And it's like, ah, I can see it resonating in regards to where the moon is in my chart. So mm-hmm. I would, you know, advise everybody to like to do that. Look at that moon. What was your mother like? What was the upbringing like? What was the circumstances like? You know, the, you know, and, and, and that will, you know, you'll see that from the aspects to your moon because the, the moon is actually telling us it's telling us a story. It's the storyteller. And, and, and that's quite interesting because in ancient times, when people gathered around the fire at night, you know, at night when the moon was out is where they would gather around the fire and tell stories. And, and the villages or the towns would have a, a you know, a local storyteller who, or, you know, or it could be the shaman or, or whoever would come and tell the mythology and tell the stories, you know, while the moon was out. So, the moon is our storyteller. She's telling us the story of our life, of who we were, who we are, and who we are going to be. Brilliant. I like that. And I I, I almost want to go on another whole digression, but that was so beautiful <laughs> that I want to leave it right there. <laughs> right. Uh, so thanks a lot for, for joining me today. Um, thanks, thanks everybody, for listening to this episode of the Astrology Podcast. Let us know 
what you think in the comments below about your own moon placement or things that you've observed, as well as whether you'd like us to continue this series and do other planets in the future. Yeah. Uh, give us some feedback and let us know, and we'll see what we can do. So yeah. thanks for watching or listening to this episode of the Astrology Podcast, and we'll see you again next time. Thank you very much. Thank you. Special thanks to all the patrons that supported the production of this episode of the Astrology Podcast through our page on patreon.com. In particular, thanks to the patrons on our producers tier, including Nate Craddock, Thomas Miller, Catherine Conroy, Michelle Marillot, Christy Moe, Ariana Amour, Mandy Ray, Angelique Nambo, Sumo Kopic, Nadia Habhab, Issa Sabah, Morgan McKinsey, and Jake Otero. For more information about how to become a patron and get access to exclusive subscriber benefits such as early access to new episodes, go to patreon.com slash astrologypodcast. Also, special thanks to our sponsors, including the Northwest Astrological Conference, which is happening online May 27th through the 31st, 2021. Find out more information at norwac.net. The Mountain Astrologer Magazine, which you can find out more information about at mountainastrologer.com. The Honeycomb Collective Personal Astrological Almanacs, which you can find out more information about at honeycomb.co. Also, the Portland School of Astrology, more information at portlandastrology.org. The Astro Gold Astrology app, available for both iPhone and Android, available at astrogold.io. And finally, the primary software program that we use on episodes of the Astrology Podcast is called Solar Fire Astrology Software, which is available at alabe.com, and you can get a 15% discount with the promo code AP15.